0: Welcome to the number one show and the source of truth for all things medtech. Here, we reveal the secrets and stories behind the investments, science, and commercialization of the medtech industry. Every week, we'll take you on a wild ride with the biggest names in the game, from entrepreneurs and investors who are shaking up the market, to healthcare providers who are revolutionizing the way we think and practice medicine. So hold on tight and get ready for a journey like no other. This is the State of Medtech. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. And just as a reminder, if you're a physician, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, this episode, along with many others, you will be able to get a free CME credit. Thanks to our partners over at CMFI. All you got to do is look in the show notes below. After you listen to the show, click that link and take 15 seconds just to type in what you learned from the show. You can write anything you want. And then you'll unlock an AMA PRA Category 1 credit. So who do we have on the show today? Well, we have another leadership episode. And usually these leadership episodes are focused on uh, people who have really made a tremendous impact in the industry. People who are often extremely humble. And so they don't do a lot of talking. They just let their work do the talking for them. But you know, it pains me because there's such great... amazing stories in our industry, especially uh, entrepreneurs like my good friend and guest we have on today. So who do we have? Today, we have Daniel Hawkins. And Daniel Hawkins' story is nothing but uh, short of extraordinary, in my opinion, you'll see starting from his childhood. But who is Daniel Hawkins? Well, let me tell you. And I had to actually sort of pull this together from the internet because... You know, again, uh, and he's not going to like that I said this, but it is true. You know, Daniel is extremely humble. You know, he does not uh, go around uh, trying to pick up accolades or brag about what he's done. But that's okay because that's why this show exists because I need people like you and my audience to hear his story, but more importantly, to learn from you. You're going to learn a lot about entrepreneurship, about innovation. And so let me tell you a little bit about him. So Daniel's a man who really carved a path through the healthcare industry through with transform, transformative startups and really revolutionary inventions. So let's start with the beginning. His, his medical device career started in marketing and business development when he took on roles at Advanced Cardio- Cardiovascular Systems, ACS, which is now part of Abbott Vascular. So he gained a lot of of insights and 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 strategies, both from these large and emerging companies he worked at, and essentially his career spanned across a lot of renowned organizations like Endologics, Restore Medical, and Teromedics, and more. So, where, in my opinion, his career really started to gain traction was at Intuitive Surgical. He was early class there, and you know, um, I have a heuristic or kind of a shortcut, which is if you meet somebody who lasted more than a year at Intuitive, in the early days, it really says something about how good they are, what they do. So he was more than just an early employee. He was more than just employee number six, that's right. He was literally employee number six, sold the first DaVinci robot, but more importantly, he established the marketing department and he played a pivotal role in guiding product feature development for the Da Vinci Surgical Robot. Some of the most iconic photos from the marketing uh, that you see of Intuitive, that was him, including um, one of the more impressive pieces, in my opinion, which is when you saw the, um, the robotic uh, hand um, positioned in a photograph next to a human hand and wrist, right? To make it seem that he was anatomically intuitive, right? And so his foundational marketing strategies have really been key to uh, intuitive suge- success, and then it also translated to other successes. So beyond his corporate roles, He has this incredible entrepreneurial story. He co-founded Calibra Medical, which is now part of Johnson Johnson, and then co-founded a little company that you might have heard of called Shockwave Medical, which is not so small anymore. Um, It was there that he didn't just lead, but he actually invented. So he developed uh, lithoplasty, balloon catheter technology, which is a revolutionary treatment uh, for calcified cardiovascular disease. And this really cemented, in my opinion, his status as an, an inventive powerhouse as he essentially got to about 100 patents under his name. Now, Journey did not stop there, right? Um, At the peak of Shockwave Medical, which was just a rocket ship, it still is, he decides to leave and start something again. People thought he was just crazy to do this. It was like, why are you doing this? And so he saw how broken... Medical sales and medical uh, uh, innovation was at least like from the medical sales uh, representative side. This is where he and I we we really hit it off a couple of years ago at the LSI Emerging MedTech Summit, and so he started a company called Avail Med Systems. In my opinion, Avail is really the vanguard of a new paradigm and the creator of a very unique approach where it combines hardware and software-based network to change how we do medical sales, which is quite groundbreaking. The main focus is to digitize the presence of medical device sales reps and external physician advisors in the procedure room. So essentially by connecting professionals remotely, Avail, by the name, which is to benefit from but also to make available, enhances clinical collaborations um, expands access to training, mitigates infection risk, and essentially um, reduces cost by ensuring that you're gonna have the very best rep no matter what in every single case. So imagine you as a rep, if you're covering a large state or you're having to drive over all over the place, how much more powerful would it be if you can be in all of your cases at any time, right? And more importantly, have more touch points without having to physically be there. That's really what Avail focuses on doing. So, if you're a uh, VP of Sales, VP of Marketing, you're looking to really, you know, shift the paradigm. Which, by the way, is a huge statement that I feel like it gets thrown around a lot. But I really do mean this when it comes to Avail. Um, you know, I would recommend to check them out and we do have a second episode with Daniel. Um, He came, he and I just hit it off all the time. So I told him he has to come back on the show. So in a couple weeks, we have another episode with him that's specifically focused on um, really an outlook on the medical sales landscape. But this one, this first one is really his leadership story. So with that being said, just Kind of some basic background, Um, he's an alumnus of the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania, and his contributions to industry have been recognized globally as he was named one of Goldman Sachs' 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs, not once, not twice, but that's right, three times. And I guarantee you he's going to be texting me or call me after he hears this and says, man, why did you have to say all that stuff? But, you know, Daniel, I say it out of um, a lot of respect and admiration, and I'm very proud to be friends with you. I'm very proud that you're somebody like you is in our industry, and I think more people need to hear um, your story and really be inspired by it about what it means to innovate and, I guess, as our... <laughs> latest book that we're reading together, Jeff Bezos's Invent and Wander. So with that being said, here's our episode with Daniel Hawkins. Enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show. I have another great episode with you. And, you know, uh, specifically with a guest that, man, I feel like, Daniel, we've been trying to do this for like over a year now. And we just keep, you know, the stars haven't aligned. But like, I don't know, this week, Mercury's in, in retrograde or Whatever, whatever astrology you know uh, needs to happen for for things for this to happen. But like, you're on the show, so everybody welcome my great guest, the great, the powerful, the legendary Daniel Hawkins. Daniel, how, oh, like... I
1: don't know about the great, powerful,
0: <laughs> legendary. legendary. <laughs> thank you. I... Great to be it... here. I knew that would bug the hell out of you, but <laughs> yeah. But I, I, all joking aside, I, I say that uh, with a profound level of like admiration and respect for somebody who I, I always enjoy talking to, you know, when we see each other at LSI or industry events, um, your background in, you know, emerging and disruptive technology is just, you know, it's so deep. And what drives me nuts is that you're so humble about it that a lot of people like, I'll mention like, did you know Daniel Hawkins did X, Y, Z, you know? And they're like, no, I had no idea. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> this is like, this is, this is a crime. So before we get into all the fantastic topics that we have today on robotics and technology adoption, you know, and especially medical sales, right? Um, let's start with the most important question first. What is your backstory? Who is Daniel Hawkins? Where'd you grow up? How did you get into this industry?
1: Well, so circuitous route to a degree, but if you actually look back at the tea leaves, you can draw lines between them all. Uh, you know, son of a doc, primary care. Um, so healthcare was in the house from my very first memories. So was entrepreneurship to a degree, because my dad took the somewhat aggressive stance of hanging a shingle immediately after he finished med school. Um, and you know that that's that was a that was a tall move. At that time, uh, he did it in the rough neighborhoods of uh, of North Philadelphia. And uh, the way he did it was he uh, he purchased at a real deep discount because the neighborhoods were terrible. Three brownstone houses side by side, ripped the walls out and built a medical center. And it had everything but a bed in it. I mean, it, it, it had podiatry and dentistry and ophthalmology and a pharmacy and primary care and chiropractic, and it was all in that same facility. Now, you know, the first place was the first floor of the house we I grew up in for the first five years or so uh, uh, on the planet. Uh, but then he uh, he put up that shingle in North Philadelphia, and that's that was the environment we were in. Uh, by the time I was eight years old, I was making sure that the DPA or Department of Public Assistance, now Medicare, Medicaid, uh, that the DPA forms had the right codes on it, that they matched the word that was written. So influenza was 47.5, at least it was. And I still remember that because I would have to correct the codes on the forms because those forms needed to go into the government. And that's how dad got paid for what he did. So uh, it was around the house all the time. Um, I became very, very curious and um, have always been scientifically minded. So I kind of knew I was headed down that pathway. But I also became fascinated with business. And business for me started at a really young age. Uh, My first experience in entrepreneurship, I was 11. And um, that experience was having the obligation of trimming the holly trees in our backyard. I came to the recognition after hopping into the, you, you remember the uh, uh, town and country station wagons with the wood, simulated wood paneling on them?
0: Absolutely, yes.
1: <laughs> so we had one. It was blue. I'll never forget it. And my favorite spot was in the back seat, that rumble seat that is now a death seat, and they don't have them anymore. <laughs> right. But um, so we piled, uh, my mom piled all of us into a back of one of those station wagons. And we went to the local AMP market. And lo and behold, outside that market, Omar, they were selling holly. Huh. I'm like, hmm, wait a minute. That's actually pretty interesting. That same holly I was clipping off the trees in the backyard became the first thing I sold door to door. To door. So I, I bundled them up in a $3 bundle, a $5 bundle. And then for, I think it was $9, might've been seven, I wrapped it around um, a wire reef frame and sold that. So I made one each of those and went door to door with a sheet of 8x11 paper with a bunch of lines on it for name, address, what they ordered, how many, and their phone number, and then whether or not I collected the money. And I just went door to door with my brother, took all the orders, and a couple of weeks later, we delivered them. Uh, and I made over 1000 bucks that year.
0: That's a, like, a lot of money. What, a lot what, of money. That's <laughs> a lot of money. That's a lot of money. If you don't want me to ask, what year was this?
1: Uh, so I'm mid fifties now, so run back, you know, 50 plus years, Man, that, well, yeah, that, 40, that's a, 40 plus years.
0: Yeah. So if you adjust for inflation, I'm going to take a while, but that's like a kid making, I don't know, 10, 15,000 bucks these days. Like, that's, a, that's a lot of money. That's a lot yes. of money.
1: <laughs> it was bank. I did really well. Um, so I got hooked. I got hooked. And then later I ended up, you know, before Costco, there was this place in Philadelphia that was called cash and carry. Right. So basically it was a warehouse
0: store. It's a hell of a name.
1: And yeah, I know. Isn't it? Uh, <laughs> and I went and bought, God, I want to say it was 40 or 50, um, uh, frisbees, you know, mm. the competition world-class frisbees or whatever those things are the ones they use for, um, uh, what's, what's that sport? What's that sport where they ultimate use the ultimate oh, frisbee ultimate? Yes. Thank you. Um, so I, I bought a whole bunch of those and, and, um, Literally, I sold them to friends in high school. And yes. then that AMP market I was talking about went out of business. And when they were going out of business, we were in the store and they screamed over the loudspeakers, fill a shopping cart for 10 bucks. I filled mine with pop rocks. You remember those?
0: I absolutely remember those. I used to throw them into my soda for fun.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. So I. Uh... <laughs> I, uh, I I filled mine with pop rocks, literally spilling over, and then sold those at school for two packs for twenty five cents, which is a fifty percent discount. But since it cost me about two pennies, I was floating in profits. There are and awesome margins. Yes, was, awesome was, margins. Were, were your
0: childhood uh, entrepreneurial ventures the in your in your career like the best profit margins you ever had? Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. By the way, I. Thought- I i gotta I gotta make a comment uh, about something that's very interesting, so your first entrepreneurial venture was selling uh clippings from a holly tree correct yeah okay so and I only know this because i'm a i'm a long student of persuasion and hypnotism. do you know where the holly tree is also very famous historically in California? No idea, oh, this is gonna blow your mind man this is the 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 deep meaning to your story here is it's about to go to another layer. Okay. So, you know, you know, Hollywood, right? Hollywood, California is the big Hollywood sign. Why Hollywood? What is Hollywood? Uh, It's because back in the day, the mystics used to create wands out of the holly tree to hypnotize people. No. Yep. Look it up. Yeah, that's why, that's why it's Hollywood. That's why they call, call it Hollywood.
1: So, so that it's essentially suggesting, I guess, that the whole art of acting in movies and showmanship is a version of
0: mystification. That's exactly um, it is. Wow. You, want, let's, I, you see, I knew I was like, just give it a minute or two, and Danny and I are going to go on some. <laughs> some We're going to so, find so, something. Yeah, so check, check it out. Check it out. So, wow. okay, so what is TV? Television tell a vision yeah. and what do you see on television you see different channels what do those channels have they have programming right yeah yeah okay. and if you think and if you think about it um you know hollywood these these movies for better or for worse have a profound impact on us as human beings as human beings learn and change our behaviors to mimicry and so for example for better or worse, when I was a kid growing up in the nineties, um, you know, this is a little bit after—not a little bit, but you know—we had the Cold War and everything, and and the Cuban Missile Crisis. All these different things happen, right? So you know who all the bad guys were in the movies—they're Russians, all of them.
1: Oh, yeah, right. to the
0: point where when I was a kid, I think I was like maybe 13, 14 years old. Uh, I met I met a Russian guy, I think, like on a plane or something, and the first thing I thought was bad guy. Cause of his accent. Right. Wow. And then in the two thousands, you know, we had September 11th happening and I can, I can point this out cause I'm, I'm Middle Eastern, but a lot of the bad guys in the movies, they're all Arabs, you know? Yep. So for better, or for worse, like Hollywood, you know, these, this programming we have is there to, you know, in some, ex, in some extent, hypnotize and influence us. So yeah. And, wow. and you as a kid started your entrepreneurial gen- journey through by selling Hollywood, which is amazing.
1: And yeah, what a great I, you know, segue I mean,
0: to get into product adoption. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so,
0: exactly. So so exactly. let's get let's go let's get to college. Where did you go to college? What did you study and how did you get into the industry?
1: Yeah, so um again, a bit a bit securitous and strange. I, I knew I wanted to be in business at that point. And I had considered medical school. Uh, my dad being a physician. Managed to cajole a couple of friends, and this is back when you could get folks into operating rooms. I went into one just before undergrad.
0: When back in the day, when you can just waltz in my so my dad is actually a surgeon, I remember those days. You just show up, like, oh, I'm Dr. So and so's son. Oh, yeah, go, uh, just grab some scrubs, just go, go, yeah, just walk back there. Great, yeah. (laughs) Scrubs are like barely fitting you while you walk in, yeah,
1: yeah. It's like a tent, right? You're wearing a tent, (laughs) yeah, you know. I mean, they're not worried about. HIPAA and patient privacy and invention. <laughs> didn't, didn't exist. Didn't exist. It was nothing. It was nothing. So uh, so I got in there and you know, what was going on, on the operating table was cool, but what was on the back table was fascinating. For me, I was like, Oh, that stuff's cool. So I was interested in the gear. I was interested in the equipment, the the, you know, single, single clip appliers that were the beginnings of what became ultimately the staplers that were used laparoscopically. I was, I was interested in all that stuff and the different shapes of the instruments and everything. And it was arguably a little bit geekish, but nonetheless, it was there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so I, I went to University of Pennsylvania for business, otherwise known as Wharton undergrad. Great place. And my hard target, um, my hard target there was to get onto Wall Street. And I thought, that's the pinnacle. Got to get myself to Wall Street. Um, While I was there, I want to say it was halfway through second semester freshman year, I was trying to come to grips with the idea that I was stepping away from healthcare. And it didn't feel good. It, it, it wasn't right. It, I was just uncomfortable with it. So I actually, for a minute, a minute, otherwise known as a quarter, um, tried to uh, conceive of a way to both do pre-med and Wharton undergrad and do it in five years. And that didn't go over well with the folks at Wharton. And it didn't go over well with my advisor and the folks in the and the med school were like, yeah, forget it. So I gave up on all that stuff and and went the business route. Now, you know, I'm I'm one of these guys that um, I I I I kind of believe you create your own opportunities, right? So fundamentally that's sort of a mindset and I had opportunity to be involved in the formation of the uh, the, uh, University of Pennsylvania Student Federal Credit Union. There were a couple of grad students that were starting a credit union. And me as a sophomore, um, you know, had the responsibility of running investments of all of the students' money. It was $2.1 million. I'll never forget that. Yes. So I was a sophomore, and my job was to invest $2.1 million on behalf of the student body who put their savings, operational savings, to get through school and all that for their books and meals and everything else, parents put money into the student federal credit union, and my job was to manage that money two point one million dollars.
0: Man, Daniel, now that got, sounds
1: glorious. <laughs> it sounds got, glorious. But yeah. let me
0: back up. <laughs> well, hold on, <laughs> before back we back up, up, I gotta just I gotta make a comment here. Like whether you believe in God or the universe, you know. <laughs> You, you you had no other path but to become an entrepreneur. I mean, like selling, you know, making a thousand bucks as a kid, selling, yeah. selling, you know, selling door to door, you know, then you, you get to manage $2.1 million in college. Like, yes. sorry, please a continue. A
1: little weird. Now, to be fair, um, that's a glorified version of what it was. It's not like I could invest in derivatives. I, I literally <laughs> had to buy government bonds, right? So it's not. It's not that hard as long as I can get a broker to help me and whatnot. Now, simultaneously, Omar, here's a here's a real strange thing that happened. And talk about really good gross margins and, and profit margins. Um, I, uh, I had a deal with my parents. Okay. And that deal was, we'll send you to any college on the planet that you want to go to. But you got to pay for room, board, and books. That was the deal. Now, why was that? Why was that the deal? In part because I have a younger sister,
0: mm-hmm. an
1: older sister, and an older brother, and all four of us, yes, all four, were at University of Pennsylvania at the same time. So it was freshman, sophomore, junior, and senior, all at the University of Pennsylvania and all without scholarship. So my parents were like, okay, there's only one way this goes, <laughs> Right. You're going to have to help out. And by the way, we were the the first family to have that happen ever in the history of University of Pennsylvania, um, University of Pennsylvania when we were there. Um, So I, I, I had to figure out a way to do it. I'm studying in Steinberg, Dietrich Hall. For an accounting exam the following Monday. Yes, I was that nerd who was doing that on a Saturday evening instead of going out to the frat party.
0: That's what it takes. And this
1: guy, (laughs) exactly, and this guy comes in with an accounting book, plops down next to me, and throws a ring of keys on the table that is between us. And he's got the same accounting book, and he's in my class, and I sort of recognize him, but not really. Um, I was taking a later stage accounting class. He was a, a, a junior, and I was a sophomore. Uh, And I looked down and the keys, the key ring has eight bike keys on it. And I said to him, I I guess you got to ride eight bikes sometime. And he said, oh, no, 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 there's only one bike. The the seven are soda machines. I closed my accounting book and I started talking to him. (laughs) So one thing leads to another. And um, I end up agreeing to purchase his soda business for $2,000 and I didn't have $2,000. So I had $500 and I found a partner uh, who I was interviewing to help me deploy 2.1 million from the student credit union that I told you about. And on his resume, he was a grad student, believe it or not. So here I am a sophomore talking to a second, sorry, a first year grad student to build his resume by being on the investment committee for the student federal credit union. And on his resume was a little note, um, uh, describing how he managed a soda business at Haverford college. And I said, <laughs> I, I, this is insane. His name is Mark Jeffroy. I, I said, can't Mark, make that up. I, you can't <laughs> make it up. You cannot make it up. And I said, Mark, I, I, uh, I'm going to talk to you about this credit union thing, and sure, you can join me. The reality is we only need to put – we just need to buy a couple of bonds. It's not a big deal. But I want to talk to you about this, and I told him about the whole thing. So we went in 50-50. We spent 1000 bucks up front, and we wrote a one-page contract where we had to pay the next 1000 over the following two quarters. We had to give 25% of the profit of the following quarter that we uh, – or the first quarter that we owned – the, uh, the business, and then it was ours free and clear. So what we ended up doing was taking those seven soda machines, we got dollar bill changers given to us by Philadelphia Coca-Cola Bottling. The machines are actually owned by Philadelphia Coca-Cola Bottling, and they would just sell us soda to put in them. And as long as we maintained a certain volume of soda, they would repair the machines, they would replace them if they needed to be replaced. They gave us free dollar bill changers, the whole thing. We took it from seven machines to 14 machines. We added uh, natural juices and dollar bill changers on all of it. And the business went from $4,800 in sales to $41,000 in sales on an annual basis. And I found myself two times a week meeting a huge truck at 79th, uh, sorry, uh, 39th and Spruce in Philadelphia unloading what was 30 cases of soda and it finished up to being 190 cases of soda lining down the sidewalk. And we would just run them every Tuesday at 10 o'clock in the morning. I ended up buying one of those. Are you a hiker by any chance?
0: Yeah, yeah, I hike.
1: All right. So do you have one of those or have you seen one of those backpacks that has a metal frame on it?
0: Yeah. Uh Yeah. All
1: right. So I bought one of those
0: just to carry
1: because (laughs) to carry not the soda. Oh. change
0: oh that's right the change it's a lot of change for 14 machines it's a
1: lot of change and it weighs a lot
0: yeah people so I would put that p- the, p- there's a reason that. why there's a reason why they in in some movies you, you put like uh, a couple of rolls of quarters in a sock and beat somebody with it like it it, it, weighs, <laughs> a lot, <actually. laughs>
1: it weighs a lot actually don't ask me how i know so, that <laughs> yeah i, I don't want to know I really don't want to know.
0: There's some stories we should um, not go down into in this, on this on the show.
1: Probably not. <laughs> I will tell you though, a roll of nickels serves as a really nice uh fist bar. If you put it in the middle Yes, of fingers, you can hold on to it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel don't, like don't ask me how I know that. Nobody,
0: nobody no, <laughs> no kids these days will never appreciate that, but back in the day, at some point, you know, you collect, you know, money as a kid and everything and you're like, "Oh, I should get these little paper things from the bank, to roll it up." And at some point, as a young boy, you hold it, you're like, Man, I could really knock oh, yeah. somebody out with this. You could knock somebody
1: clean out yeah. doing that. <laughs> So I, I used to uh, I used to wear the backpack and I would just empty the quarters in the back and keep on going to the next machine. and when I got uh, when I got it all full I would slowly because it was really heavy, I'd slowly walk my way to the local bank where we had an account and I'd take the backpack off, hoist it up on the counter and walk out. And then they'd send me a note later that day of how much money I got. They'd count it for me, and it would just go into my bank account. So that's how I paid for room, board, and books for the balance of my college education. Um, and while I was uh, while I was doing that um, that credit union thing, I ended up uh, getting involved in venture capital through it. Sounds a little weird, but um, I ended up getting involved in venture capital because I went to uh, an investment bank. There was only one investment bank in in Philadelphia at the time. It was called Butcher and Singer. And I went to Butcher and Singer, and I found my way to the government bond desk. And I got on the phone with somebody and and uh, and talked to them about it. And he said, "Well, look, it's pretty simple. You're only allowed to buy bonds. Here's the pricing. You can fluctuate one day to the next, but it's truly not that complicated." I'm like, oh All right. So there goes my my sort of fancy version of managing two million dollars." I bought the bonds and then I said, well, you know, I'd love to find a way to work somehow in the investment, small company investment side. Omar, I didn't know what venture capital was. I had absolutely no idea. So this woman introduced me to some people and long story short, I told them I'll work for free. I just want to learn. So every, every Tuesday after I finished my soda machine stuff, I went to Butcher and Singer. I wore a shirt and a tie and I read business plans every week for my sophomore year and my senior year. And that taught me how to look at businesses. I got to sit in the partners meetings. They had me in pitch meetings. I actually met Craig McCall during all of that because he was pitching McCall's Cellular. Do you remember that?
0: I do. I was, I was, I was, I was, yeah, I was, it was taking me a second, but I was like, wait, I know that name. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: So for those not familiar, that is now AT&T Wireless.
0: Yeah. They they acquired it. This is, this is, this is so, uh, I got to make a a note of something because I have a lot of uh, like young professionals and reps listening. This is, I think one of the like career hacks that nobody uses, which is if you want to like level up, right. I always tell people like. In your career, you're either learning, you're earning. And at the first part of your career, focus on learning. Like if there's a $100,000 job and a $50,000 job, but the $50,000 job gives you access to more responsibility, take the $50,000 job.
1: All and this, day.
0: Yeah, all day. And this idea of reaching out to people, because there's all kinds of things that people don't want to do. They need help with. And it's just like, hey, I'll do it for free. I just want to learn. And, I'll, and I, I'll give a shout out to one specific guy who took this obviously to literally to, to above and beyond Henry Peck. So Henry Peck, you know, three, man, it might've been longer. No, it's like three or four years ago was an engineer at Johnson Johnson, just graduated from college, reached out to me on LinkedIn, wanted to get into marketing, uh, wanted to learn. And so I gave him some specific books to read, a few courses. He just blazed through it within a month or two, came back for more. And, you know, we've developed a a great relationship, but that guy just went above and beyond in his marketing career, mainly because he was like, I just want to learn. And I think that yep. when, you, when you reach out to people, and it's very easy. I think a lot of people will say, hey, I want to, be, I want to learn, I want to teach, uh, or I want to learn from you. Not a lot of people say, hey, I'll do free work. I'll work for free. I'll do whatever you want in exchange. I just want to be paid with knowledge. Yeah, exactly. Key to life. Key to life. Sorry, please continue. That's what
1: I did. No, it's, that's exactly what it did. It worked great. So then I entered, I got introduced to this concept of venture capital. And I, I, of course, then knew. And, and how
0: old were you at this time?
1: Uh, so I was a, it was second semester, sophomore year. So, so sophomore everything year
0: we've covered is before the age oh, of yeah, 21. Oh yeah, I'm not even 20 yet. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, 20, so just, just for, just, yeah. just, just for context, your skill stack or your talent stack is insane because you have sales, entrepreneurship, investing, all the things that come along with starting and running a business before you're even 20 years old, and this is like baseline for you. <laughs> Did yeah, you really need I mean, to go to hacking at hack- all at that Omar, point?
1: I was hacking at <laughs> all, all of it. Um, so you know, I'm at, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, going through the recruiting process and all of that. And uh, basically my, my class, class 89, we dumped out into Wall Street and consulted, right? Uh, but there were four private equity jobs and I applied to all of them. And I was not selected for one and I was selected for the other three. And one of those three was a group called Chemical Venture Partners. That went on to become uh, Chase Capital Partners. That went on to become JP Morgan Partners.
0: And uh,
1: that that group. So some of the original folks are still there that I worked with, um, you know, a million years ago. Uh, But I ended up in venture capital and leverage buyouts and had a bias towards healthcare deals and found myself at 21 or 22 on a board of directors in a meeting and recognizing that something was wrong. And I was able to spot something and help fix a company and all that. And then I thought, you know what? I just don't like this life. It's not what I want. I, I want to be on the other side of the table. I've got this entrepreneurial itch. I want to create um, market makers. I want to disrupt markets. I want to innovate. And I'm not getting enough health care. So I'm going to go back to school. Um, so I applied to, um, to the top two schools and figured if I don't get into one, I'm not going to go until I do. And um, I was fortunate enough to get into one and move out to the West Coast. And after business school, got into med tech. So well, that's the long version of how it all happened.
0: What, what, what was the first medtech company you started at?
1: Um, it was Advanced Cardiovascular Systems.
0: Ah. The
1: division of Eli Lilly. Yeah. Uh, the coronary uh, division of Eli Lilly. And for those not familiar, that is now Abbott Vascular by way of guidance, by way of acquisition, by Boston Scientific and divestiture of the vascular business to Abbott. That's was Jay Watkins was, uh, there
0: when uh, – So Jay was,
1: although I was not working with him because he (laughs) was on the origin med system side uh, with Fred, actually. So it was Jay, Joe Mandato, and Fred and a couple other guys. and um, So they were doing origin med systems. And I was over in the vascular side, and I had everything that wasn't a, a balloon or a wire. And in the first six months, one of my products went into recall, and the other one had a core material pulled off the medical device market by DuPont. So I went mm. from thirty eight million in sales I was managing to a million and a half. <laughs> it was the next year Ugh. was challenging, challenging. So we worked through a recall and a number of other things and I ended up growing it back to about forty five or fifty million.
0: Nice. Nice. So when did intuitive happen?
1: Shortly after that. So um, I was at ACS
0: before and the Palma Shop stent came in. Yeah. At, at At advanced cardiovascular system what, what what were the roles you held? Were you in the sales marketing side? were you engineer what 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 roles were you? i was
1: yeah, so I was in marketing I okay was a product manager I
0: was okay, product got, it. Manager. got it got uh,
1: it and i'll describe myself as very scientifically minded and really cared about the engineering side, so I spent a whole hell of a lot of time with engineers. Got it. Because uh, I wanted to understand how they built stuff and how they designed it and why they designed it certain ways, and I was uh, I, I had more of an upstream bias then, mm. uh, understanding mm-hmm. ideation through to product release. That was more where my bias was at that point, and and I would say maintained for some time period. Only uh, up until probably the last uh, seven to ten years have I been focused more mid to down, um, but you know. Right after, um, right after ECS, I, I desperately wanted to be in a startup, and uh, I went to go learn at a large company, and went to the first startup that would hire me, and I recognized six months in it was not a good fit. Hmm. So you know, my lesson learned at that point is uh, wait for the right fit. Don't don't jump on on what is the headline description. I'm going from big company to med tech startup, venture capital yeah. funded, and. Uh, so I was there about six months, and I knew it wasn't a fit, and I called a, uh, I called somebody that I knew from business school who was a partner at um, what was then Mayfield Funds, and Mayfield Funds um, used to have healthcare, and it since doesn't have healthcare, and I'm actually not even sure Mayfield still exists, uh, but the healthcare uh, group was run by a guy by the name of Earl, uh, uh, sorry, Russell Hirsch. And working with Russell was a woman by the name of Wendy Hutton, who's now over at um, uh, Really, just a terrific lady, whip smart, and um, and just uh, you know, I credit Wendy's dialogues for helping me get into intuitive. Uh, she helped me during business school learn the business uh, a bit because she would, she graduated from Stanford as I did, and and became one of those informational interview type. Folks, I would call back with some regularity, right? You talked about learning from people. So I would call and, and chat with Wendy. Um, so I called her uh, about six months into that post-ACS gig and said, Wendy, I need to get back into something clinical. I, I, this is just too hard. I was I was working at an uh, uh, inventory management company, uh, OmniCell, and it just was not for me. And I knew it wasn't for me. Yeah, and, uh, she said, okay, what are you looking for? And I said, something very disruptive, world class people. She said, well, we're incubating this, this company at Mayfield. Um, uh, they're, they're going to use a robot for minimally invasive surgery. And I said, really? Who, who's involved? She said, well, Fred Mall. And I said, Fred from Guidant? And she said, yeah. I said, introduce me. I got to talk to this guy. Now, Put it into perspective. This is 1995.
0: So this is, yes, this is like straight out of SRI, very early days. It was
1: still in SRI. Oh,
0: is it still in SRI? Okay.
1: Yes, yes. Got it. And internet didn't really exist, right? So what I did was called Fred, and I called him, and I called him, and I called him, and then I called him some more, and he kept ignoring me, and I called him some more, and eventually I badgered my way into a conversation with him. We ended up chatting a bit. He had me over to SRI. That's why I know that it was still in SRI. So I went over to go see this thing. And when I saw it, I walked into a room, Omar, that had three towers of computers, all in these racks that were on wheels. Three engineers, one each in front of all of them, banging away on keyboards. Wires going all over the place to these gigantic gimbal looking arms bolted to this six foot long picnic table looking thing. And a desk lamp shining on a half a piece of chicken on a Dixie plate. And at the tip of all of that, there were wrists doing this. And I was like, whoa. My first comment to Fred was, please tell me you can shrink all of this stuff. (laughs) <laughs> this is not going to work. Yeah, and he said, "Yes, trust me, we can shrink it." And I said, "Okay, great. Let's go look at what's going on over there." And at the tip of that instrument, I'm just seeing needle passing, and I'm seeing this. Just
0: I'm seeing a dance in 1995, which, which which is wild, wild, wild. Like, for it for people who are who don't know, in the 90s, and I'm I I, I remember, like your concept of a robot was like you know, uh, uh lost either in C- space. yeah, lost in space or C3PO <laughs> and, and R2D2 or yeah. uh short circuit. <laughs> like that's, yeah, exactly. you know what I mean? So like to see something like this, it, it must've been like insane. It it's maybe it's the same equivalent. I, I think it, the, it's even more, more cause we're kind of used to seeing a lot of cool things now with the internet and everything. I feel like it's the same thing as like when we see humanoid robots, like, you know, yeah. like, you know, that like are interacting with us and everything. I feel like that's what you went through, but like times 10.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially that's what it was. Essentially. that's what. And I couldn't, Did, I literally couldn't get out of my head. What, it just, it uh,
0: since it was, it was, since it was at SRI, I know, um, at that time, that's where Gary Guthard, so the current CEO of intuitive. Yeah. So was he, was he already yeah. there as an engineer working or?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. He was one of the three guys.
0: Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Gary, Gary was one of the three guys banging on on, on, the the, on one guys. of those huge towers. Yeah. Yeah, Amazing. One of and three guys. So, so you joined Intuitive. You're employee number six. Wow. So, just like I was really early.
1: Non-technical person. Yeah, I was the first non-technical person there. And, and um, this gets a little bit to you know I didn't I didn't realize this until until just now. You mentioned that um, you go to learn. That's what you do. You go, you go sample and you learn, and there's value in that. I just realized I kind of did that again because Fred said to me, "You know, we're looking for somebody who who can help us set the specs on the Da Vinci robot. It was called the system at the time. They didn't really have a name for it. I ended up naming it, but um, and and then uh, somebody who can help us figure out." first markets to go into. And I'm thinking, this is probably the greatest job I could ever be greedy enough to hope for. Uh, but he said, I'm not sure you're the right guy. And I said, "Fred, give me something to try. Just, I'll do it on the side. I'll do nights, weekends, I'll do whatever it is. Give me something to try, let me show you. And he said, okay, I want you to go find out as much as you can about our competitor. That was computer motion. And he and he said, "Look, I'll 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 give you a two month contract to figure out what that is." So I was like a consultant thing or whatever, and and it was on my own time. And so I was at a conference for work. Um, I was working at OmniSelt at the time, so we were at the AORN. And uh, computer motion was there, and they had their little scope holder. It was called ESOP. And I went over, and there was somebody in the booth, and I went over just full blown ignorant. Can you tell me about this thing? Oh, it holds a scope. Cool. Can it hold instruments? And the guy just went on to tell me absolutely everything they're doing. And I called Fred and I said, and this was about 10 or 12 days into my little little window of time with Fred. I said, Fred, I'm going to forget literally everything I'm thinking of right now. But on a trade show floor, me and a doc stood in front of this guy and he told us all this stuff. Get out a pen and a paper and write it all down because... I'm not, I'm not going to remember this and I'm not sure exactly what I heard. So we run all this stuff down. It was like, yeah, it's super helpful. When can you start? And that was, that was it. That's how it happened. Literally. Uh, So I ended up joining as number six.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. There is, you know, I think there is a, a talent to finding out. Right. And I think, um, you know, uh, for me, like having been, been in medical school, the one thing you learn coming out of medical school is you just, you just learn how to teach yourself anything and everything. And I think like for your past yeah. for everything you just described, there's all these inflection points that are just kind of, I guess you naturally grew up with, with you had to figure something out very quickly, very, very fast. And so I guess like when, you know, I don't know what the saying is like when the, uh, opportunity meets preparation i don't know whatever the hell that saying is you know it you know it happened okay so so essentially you did uh like counterintelligence
1: (laughs) Got (laughs) (laughs) i listened well on a trade show floor and that's what i did (laughs) hey
0: it's you know even today i feel like there's 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 value in knowing how to infiltrate uh the competitive landscapes conference you know, exhibit hall, you know, or exhibit yeah. exhibit booth, and figure out what exactly what they're, doing. they're doing. People are I a lot candidly, a lot more savvier though these days yeah, to figure out. People, like this guy's asking too many questions.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine. When we were doing when we were doing booths at Chocolate, I would I would coach people, and I'd tell them that exact story, and I'd say, guys, look, be careful what you said, because anything you say in a trade show floor that's public. Yeah. Be real careful, right? Because it's so, you know, that's, that's what happened.
0: Yeah. You know, when I was at Missouri Robotics, like my my biggest thing about the trade shows is like, look, based on the demos we're doing, there's nothing that we're showing or saying that can't be looked up online. I was like, so competitors come over. Hey, you use those bodies. Nobody knows that that's a competitor. They they might think it's another doctor. They're like, get a crowd do the demos exactly you know so i was like stage yeah so (laughs) yeah exactly so i was like that's actually the first sneaky tactic i came up with when i was a marketing manager which is like hey when the when when competitor you know uh uh, who was it uh globus or medtech rosa or the other guys who i hate to say this their marketing is not good and they're a big company i can't remember their name brain something brain labs Brain lab. Yeah. Brain lab. There we go. Brain lab. Brain lab. Yeah. we come over. I just tell people, I'm like, look, use those bodies, get a crowd of them. Like doctors are going to stop. Just use Yeah. they want to learn? Great. We're going to use you, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Tip. <laughs> um, that, that, that reminds me, uh, that reminds me of when we showed the intuitive system of the Da Vinci for the very first time was at the American college of surgeons meeting in San Francisco.
0: What, what year and was we that? We were
1: in the, uh, Probably ninety seven, ninety eight. Probably ninety eight. I'm guessing
0: ninety eight. How long? How long um, were you with Intuitive
1: too?
0: five years. Five years. Got Four, it.
1: almost five years. Almost five years. I left in two thousand uh, for personal reasons. I went um, uh, went back to the East Coast to be closer to family because uh, my wife and I had two girls at that point, and uh, we wanted to be closer to family. So I ended up doing a biotech company, which you probably didn't know.
0: Uh, I, so did I did not a biotech know that
1: company for. For for a little bit, I'll describe that one in uh, in a minute. But so um, so we're at we're at ACS, and uh, because we were you know uh, a pencil tip sized company, um, and we applied late for booth space, we got a twenty by twenty all the way in the back left corner, near the restroom, near the place where you buy nachos and pretzels.
0: Right, that's I mean, a that's a good location, <laughs> man. I know no it's in the back. You buy the restrooms, buy the food. That, that's actually a good location in my eyes
1: <laughs> so um, I was running marketing and my job was of course to get some people to the booth so talk about sneaky tactics um, we decided to put a da Vinci on stage for the first time okay so everybody wanted to watch it everybody wanted to see it um, so we sent out little little notes and you know you're not supposed to uh, go underneath doorways with announcements unless they're saying yeah you gotta pay for society. it
0: you gotta pay for it
1: unless you don't
0: exactly hey man <laughs> start up man always ask for forgiveness never ask for permission right
1: 100 percent. 100 percent. i love so we it just hired some high school kids and we went
0: <laughs> oh that's even oh door. that's even sneakier i like that you hired oh, yeah. high school kids so you didn't do it yourself you hired high somebody to do it kid. I like that. No, I some. I like that.
1: So, so we ended up. Uh, so, yours truly was wearing a Madonna headset, right? You remember those things with the, yeah, the yeah. little cable down uh, up on stage, and and you know the the uh, the exhibit hall would say it opened up at nine o'clock or whatever. By eight thirty, we had a crowd of I don't know 25, 30, maybe even forty industry people, just wanting oh, okay. to see what this was about, right? So these this is this is the era where there'd be. 150 by 150 square blocks of real estate that are uh, for Ethicon and for U.S. Surgical and just these huge footprints, right? We're this tiny little thing in the back corner. Uh, and by the time the exhibit hall opened, we had to have 100 and a half people out there.
0: It's a lot and of people. And I was a lot there
1: talking about robots. First time we, we showed it. And I was up on stage and uh, talking about robots. And I'll never forget, I... I told everybody to ignore what they're seeing and instead focus on the principles of surgery and triangulation. And all we did was shrink it and make your hand small enough to put through a port. And uh, the messaging worked great. And we had places for people to look and try it out. That was fun. That was a fun time.
0: How important do you think that is when it comes to persuasion and technology adoption, which is to put things into context in terms of like the principles of how things are done and how do you translate that to? Let's say the future.
1: Uh, you know, the product is. Some people say the product is everything. Um, if it's everything, then you know the uh, the uh, icing and cherry on top is the message. Uh, you got to have it. You it, if if you can crystallize the complicated and make it relatable to the simple, you, you've you've completely changed your adoption profile. I right. Completely so
0: completely agree
1: the way I described this was um, let's get back to the fundamental principles of surgery and triangulation. Your head's in the middle, your hands are on the sides for a reason. We set you up that way. Your head is the camera. Your hands are these instruments. And that wrist you like to use every other booth in this exhibit hall is such that that wrist has a cast on it. Right. We broke the cast and we Mm -hmm. put your hands all the way inside And we, and we let you operate with your fingertips and all the dexterity. And the reason why it's called intuitive is because it's exactly that I challenge you to put your hands on it. You'll find out.
0: I, man,
1: that was it. It just,
0: I got to deconstruct real quick. The persuasion that you just laid out because this audience loves, you know, I feel like one of the, my, one of my biggest, biggest hangs up, hang up in our industry is that, especially in the startup world. I always hear like some CEOs are like, Oh, we're in the, business of behavior change, but they do not really understand what that means. So first principle of persuasion you mentioned is like simplifying things. So it's actually, actually relatable, right? So you can actually understand it. The other side, which people make the mistake of is not persuasion based, which is using analogies. Analogies are powerful. So people understand, right? Yes. And the last, one last thing I have to point out, because again, I I I love persuasion is that One of the most powerful ways to persuade is to use, is to use visuals. But if you don't have visuals to use, to make something easy to imagine, right? So you mentioned Mm -hmm. like using your wrist, you have a cast on and everything. You break the cast, like very vivid imagery, right? And I completely agree. I get, you can have the best technology in the world, but if you are not, if your vehicle for persuasion is, is crap, no one's going to adopt it because they, they just cannot, they cannot see it. They cannot see it. That's exactly it. right. If they, they cannot see it, see it, they're it. not going to change. You know? Yes. That's exactly. That's exactly correct. Exactly. So,
1: you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a really strong believer in analogies. And, and um, you know, my team actually, sometimes I can feel them rolling their eyes. Like, okay, here comes another one. <laughs> but,
0: yeah, but you, you know, know what? But use analogies the right way. Yeah, it works. Use analogies the right way. You can't use an analogy. People use analogies all the time to try and persuade like, like oh, we can't do it this way because it's like I don't know driving a car backwards. We think that that's that that works. It really doesn't. But analogies are perfect when it comes to simplifying and 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 making something understandable. And in that process, it yeah. ends up being persuasive. You know.
1: Yeah, and and you know my last company, Shockwave Medical, and I know we'll probably get to that at some point. But um, you know the last company I did was Shockwave, and people didn't understand what lithotripsy was doing,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: to the point of analogies. Um, I described, um, if you take a water balloon and you put it on the table and you put your left hand, your left palm on that water balloon, and in your right hand, you have a pencil and you tap the right side of the balloon. You feel it in your left hand, right? You do Mm -hmm. feel that. And everybody knows that right away. And then I said, well, all we're doing is hitting it really hard. We're hitting it at 70 atmospheres, not a 10th of an atmosphere like you did with your pencil. We're pounding it, and we're doing it faster than the speed of, of light, of uh, sound, sorry. And those analogy, that kind of a thing helps people understand how that pressure wave can move. And if it's powerful enough, it broke the calcium. So that's that's how the shock wave would work. But I'm a real strong believer in analogies, so uh, it's good to hear somebody else's. Did, you,
0: did your father use analogies a lot when you were growing up? No. No? <laughs> it <was laughs> just be you.
1: To didn't. No.
0: My, my dad, my no. dad, my dad uses analogies with me all the time. And sometimes I'm like that, I get it. Like, he's like, no, no, you, it's like, and I'm like, all right, just let him get it out of his system. <laughs> yeah, he's
1: got to, he's, he's just, he's got to get that
0: out. So no, b- I mean, before I, you get to I shockwave, were, what the hell yeah. is this? You, you, you were, you started a biotech company.
1: Oh no, I didn't start it. I didn't start okay. it. Um, I was asked to join okay. uh, a biotech company in Bethesda
0: uh-huh. and,
1: um, there was a, uh, a two two entrepreneurs got together to try to try to use bioinformatics to mine the genome for uh, signals that could be uh, elucidated from uh, from blood samples signals for complications associated with chronic diseases so you should be thinking uh, retinopathy signals for patients with diabetes so is a certain protein, a uh, certain allele expressing that would suggest that a patient is predisposed more than someone else to retinopathy, by way of example? Well, those two entrepreneurs were Alex Tatumrov, who's the founder of uh, InfraMax, and then Lee Hood, who is the founder of Amgen, and um, the inventor of the human genome sequencing machine. So um, they had a a uh, some funding from a venture capital firm over in maryland uh, or in virginia and i knew one of the partners so um that partner actually called me when i was still at intuitive and offered me the uh number two spot so that became the catalyst for us to move over there the unfortunate part was um what we were planning on doing Mm -hmm. essentially was 23andme but a deep clinical version of it so I have diabetes, and I predisposed towards retinopathy. I predisposed towards peripheral um, you know, uh, nerve issues. And um, we ran out of funding right around, I'll say we were funding right around 9-11. And there was no funding to be had. So um, I had to shut that one down. And, and in a world of learning from experiences, I forced myself to be the one who, Shut the lights off, close the door, and drop the keys into the leasing agent's open hand because hmm. I never wanted to feel that again.
0: Why'd you do that?
1: Um, I'm, a, I'm a believer in internal imagery. So hmm. my self-talk, um, I just want to know what that was like because hmm. that's, that's a crisp feeling when you got to do that. And then you've, you know, you're carrying your banker's box worth of stuff that was on your desk and you're going back to your car and you know that's the last time you're going to that building. It's a big deal. That's a big deal. It, it gets, it gets right into your head. And if ever you needed motivation to push yourself a little harder, just go back to that moment. Um, mm-hmm. so that I wanted that fuel and that fuel is actually what I later used at, um, during the early moments at Shockwave to push through and, um, there was some moments that, you know, everybody looks at, at that and says, Oh wow, it's great. It's a super success and all the rest of that. Yeah, sure, it is. The early days. Nah, there's a backstory. <laughs> there is yeah. a backstory on that And
0: you know, it's interesting you 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 mentioned this. Um uh yeah, I'm very big believer in that as well, which is and I think I learned this, I have to give credit to the the great and and wise uh, Charlie Munger, um, who said, uh you know failure is a great teacher but you don't have to learn through your own failure you know learn through others right. and so kind of like right. you know that you know that failure that event wasn't uh, essentially your fault because you weren't leading the company but you took advantage of that moment to like really make that visceral and really experience mm-hmm. that and i think that um you know i i love i love this industry and uh, and i i i look at it very similar to like sports and like, um, like if you look, think about like uh, Michael Jordan, right. And Kobe Bryant. So Michael Jordan, if you guys, if you watch the last dance, you know, he, he like thrived off of trash talk. Mm-hmm. And, and there was this one game where he just, I of went off. Right. And, and the story is like, he was, passing by somebody like one of the other players and this player made a comment to him and it really pissed him off. They interviewed that player later on. And he said like, I never said anything to Mike. I I didn't say that. And so, you know, for Jordan, apparently a lot of the times that, you know, that he gets fueled is like trash talk or the time that he wasn't picked for his high school varsity team, all these different things. And sometimes when it comes to like driving your behavior and everything, like I think, the pull of a goal is, is very powerful, but what's more power is ha- powerful is having that pull with the push of fear and failure behind you. And it sounds like that's kind of what you crystallized and did what it wanted- did you did, did you consciously knew, know that in that process when you were locking up that biotech, what was the name of that biotech company? Uh, Pluvida. Pluvida. Like when you're locking that up, going through that whole process, in your mind, were you thinking that like, I'm creating a moment that I can tap into in the future.
1: Um, I didn't, I don't know if I was um, mature enough in my thinking at that exact moment to realize it. I was more like, uh, I was more thinking, this is really making me angry. I don't want this to happen again. Mm. And I want to, in a, I like your word visceral, at a visceral level, I want to feel what this is. mm and it, it was helping me cope with that moment that I was the one doing that because I asked myself, as everyone would in that situation, could I have done something differently? And the short answer is, yeah. really, probably not. Probably not. Uh, but it was that question of could I have done something differently? And and you know there were times. Uh, moments in jockwave uh, when I was doing that one, and we ran into into some challenges. I never actually consciously thought of that moment of dropping the keys and whatever, but I did as a habit, and I still do ask myself, is there more I can do? Is there is there something that needs doing that I don't know needs doing because I'm not thinking about it. Let me force myself to think about it. Is there something that needs doing that my team isn't thinking about? Is there something that needs doing that my team suggested or brought up, but nobody picked up the baton on? Um, you know, fundamentally, is the more we can do. And if if there is more that we can do, then do it. Get going. Um, if If what you're trying to do is get something finished, uh you can't leave parts of it undone. It's just that's it. You can't.
0: No, I I I completely agree. And I'm wondering if um if you agree with this quote, uh so Andrew Grove, who is the chairman and president of Intel, right? Yep. Uh who saved that company when they're you know they're gonna fail, made made really big changes uh and he wrote this book called Only the Paranoids Survive. And in that book, you know, again, as the title suggests, he has this quote that says, like, success breeds complacency and complacency breeds failure. Only the paranoid survive. Do you, would you agree with that? Does that, you know, do you feel like that's a, that's a crucible that every entrepreneur sh- should have?
1: I would say yes, although there's something in the word paranoid that, that just sits a little bit off for me. Um, Mm -hmm. but I will say that I do think uh, success does breed complacency, or I should say can breed complacency. Um, Paranoid, yes, if what you're talking about is if you're not paranoid that you're going to get eaten alive by your competition competitively, marketing-wise, sales-wise, whatever it is, then yes, I I would line up with that. Um, I, I, I think one should never be comfortable. If what you're trying to do is constantly be the leader and grow and disrupt and change and be the catalyst on that change, um, what you did yesterday is reportable. What you're gonna do tomorrow is unknown. So figure out what needs to be known and just go do it. And um, I I like to think that, I I tend to be vision and mission-based. And when you're vision and mission-based, technology is the catalyst to get there. Mm. And your flexibility to deal with variabilities in that technology becomes um, the grease in the in the, uh, in the in the skids to be able to, underneath the skids, to be able to make a move. And you have to be mindful of what are you actually trying to get done and self-critical. And I don't mean in, 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 the, in the tough beat yourself up way, I mean in the don't drink your own Kool-Aid way. Ask yourself objectively, outside looking in, are you doing everything you can? Is the approach you're using the right approach? Is what you're doing in the furtherance of your goals or are you taking spurious sidetracks because they're little pet projects or because you're afraid to take the path that you need to take. You know, when I was doing Shockwave um, and, and and at Avail 2, um, I, I tell my team, there's a there's there comes a time when you're making a decision. You're either going to take the path to the left or the right or the right or the left or whatever it is. At that moment, kind of think of it to use an analogy, kind of think of it as a hiking trail. You're at a trail point where there's a fork. And you can take one path or the other. And three steps later, you're probably five feet away from where you would have been if you would took the other path. Half an hour later, you're probably a mile apart. So at any point in time, you have a moment to make a decision and that decision should not be a complacent one. That decision should be in the furtherance of your goal. That decision should make sure that you're covering all of your bases and you're walking towards the path that you wanna get to and if you make the wrong decision, man up, woman up, man up, person up, jump over to the other side and get on the right damn path. Because that's where you actually need to end up being. One of the things I, uh, I also did, um, I did at Shockwave, I did at Avail in a slightly different format. Um, I asked my engineers, small group of engineers, super inventive guys and, and gals, um, here's our patent portfolio. Here's what we're doing. Take off your Shockwave hat for a moment, put on the stealth startup hat and break these patents, break them, shatter them, come up with another way of doing it, force yourself to think out of the box, come up with some other way of creating the same mechanism of action or the same end effect with a different mechanism of action. Do something to disrupt what we've already created. And then we would patent it all. Right. And, um, in doing that, we never stayed complacent. Now, you can call that paranoia, and I would say Grove probably would call that paranoia. Um, you know, I uh, uh I I look at that as optimization, I look at that as making sure we're doing what we should be doing, because what we discovered is in some of that process somewhere, we uncovered things that we actually deployed in the product. We didn't just patent and put on the shelf. We realized, oh, wait a minute. If we did that, then this would happen. And if we did that, that gets us closer to the perfect Nirvana product. We should do that now. That is the jump from one path to the next move over because you're able to incrementally hopscotch your way to the optimal embodiment of what you're trying to do.
0: That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. You know, before we, uh, cover shockwave and then, uh, and we'll get to avail. Uh, I, I'm wondering, you know, and I'm going to ask you this again, because I'm, I feel like there's different phases of your career that you, you've had this, but during your time at intuitive and then, uh, this, this later company, what was something that a colleague, a mentor, uh, somebody close to you told you that was really painful, that hurt, that hurt you. Ooh, but but Ooh, it made you but, it, ma- but it yeah but it made you better that changed you
1: Um I know exactly what it was I know who it was I know oh. when it was said um, Oh
0: man Re- take us back to that moment
1: Yeah this is an interesting one So um, the first cardiac procedure that was done using the Da Vinci was done by Didier Lumet in Paris and uh, he was a, and still is just a fantastic surgeon. But at the time, he was a young surgeon training under Alain Calpontier in Paris. And it was a um, left internal mammary descending artery to um, uh, to uh, left anterior descending. So it's the main. They were revascularizing the main blood supply for the heart. And using a, uh, a technique that's called Lima to LAD, uh, I should say, called Lima to LAD, but it was done using the Da Vinci. Omar, that took twelve hours. Oh my that God! Thing. Twelve hours. It's insane. That patient was under pump for twelve hours, but DGA did a beautiful job. Now, why did it take twelve hours? Because We've never done one. And it's complicated as the dickens to get it done. But we learned a lot. We learned an awful lot doing that. Now fast forward. And we hadn't sold any robots at that time. Uh, Fast forward. uh, They had been in dialogue with Health Centrum Dresden. And specifically a surgeon by the name of uh, Stefan Schuller. And Stefan and I were chatting about the Da Vinci. And he said, I, you know, Daniel, I, I think I love one of these things. I, I want to buy one. Long story short, he bought the first one and I sold it to him. And um as my uh as my QP doll at the end of that sales process, I got to move to Dresden for a month and train his surgical team on how to use the robot for closed for uh ultimately the the goal was closed chest uh limited LADs. But Lonnie Smith told me you can't come home unless you have three procedures in a row at less than
0: 45 minutes. And Lonnie was a CEO of Intuitive. He was CEO
1: time. at the time. Yeah. 12 hours to 45 minutes.
0: And you cannot Somehow come or home. or
1: another, yeah. He said, you can't come home. He said, Lonnie, you gotta be kidding me. I got a 10 month old daughter at home, first kid. I'm moving to Germany for a month. I, I need to come home at least for a weekend. So I came home for a weekend in the middle of that and went back. And when I went back, um, I had not slept at all. I went straight into the operating room. I leaned against the wall and I fell asleep standing up. (laughs) Literally did. Um, But during that process, we got it done. We got it done in 28 days. Uh, The surgeon was a guy by the name of Roman Sishog. I don't know if he's still practicing or not. Phenomenal pair of hands. (laughs) I will say I took no prisoners in getting that done. There were a couple of folks that joined from Intuitive for a time period, and I took no prisoners. I was absolutely militant about the the procedure flow, about all of the workflow, about how we planned in the procedure in the beginning, who did what, full control of the operating. And I rubbed a couple of guys the wrong way, and that went back to Lonnie Smith. And Lonnie pulled me aside after I got back and he said, phenomenal job. Love the result. You could have been a little more gentle. And I said, but Lonnie, disruption is not a gentle process. And he said, yes, I, I understand that, but you could have been a little more gentle. And Daniel, you know, you remind me of, of, of uh, what people are really good at. And here's the hurtful part, the stung. Because I saw myself climbing a ladder and running large organizations and and ultimately getting to a CEO chair. And that's how that, that was, that was what my my internal talk track was headed towards. And he said, you know, Daniel, you're an individual contributor. Ouch. I said, Lonnie, what do you mean by that? And he said, don't take offense. Like, that was painful. And he said, well, you're and, and I'll, I'll never forget this. I was standing outside of his office. He called me into his office. We sat down, and within four minutes, he said it. I could literally tell you what paintings were on the wall. It was that kind of a that was it was one of those moments. And I said, Lonnie, what do you mean? And he said, um, You could soften your edges a little and bring more people in because the problem you have is you see the right solution and you don't allow other people to be part of that solution. That was big. That hit me like a baseball bat. And I I took that back and I I brooded for a little while. <laughs> Not gonna lie. That was a tough one. Um, and I internalized it and I thought about it and went back to him a couple of times and got a little coaching. And that uh, set me on a path of involving more folks. Decision making. And uh, it was humbling because it, it also showed me uh, a vulnerability I had at the time of not listening as well as I could or should. And uh, I'd like to think that I solved that. You know, interview my team and you'll find out, I guess. Um, but, you know, over time, that turned more into uh, crowdsourcing knowledge and uh, ultimately crowdsourcing decision-making. And yes, at the end, when you're running a company, you got to make the choice or you're running a department or whatever it is, you got to make the choice. Um, but, you know, instead of surrounding myself with people who were, which I did add Intuitive actually, I brought in somebody who I knew that I could manage versus somebody who would challenge me because I was afraid to somebody who would challenge me and that was a mistake and i i will never make that mistake again i i i always want to hire people uh who are better than me uh, at what they do uh, i want people around me in teams and i want to be part of teams where i'm not the best one there i want to learn something from somebody because we all do every day all the time uh, and You know, if you go in with that mindset of constantly being a student, that is not the mindset I had in Dresden. I was 100 percent. Here's how it's going to go. I'm not sure, you know, if I want your opinion, I'll tell it to you and then I'll ask you for it. That was my mindset back then. (laughs) It was very aggressive. And I had that mindset because I wanted to go home. So I just got overly pushy. And um, that set me on a different path. And you know what? I don't know if Lonnie will listen, but thank you. It was, it was, uh, it was a big deal. That was a big deal. So if you, if you hear those things, work with them, right. Chances are whoever said something to you, if they're, if they're otherwise established in their own career, they're they're probably onto something.
0: Yeah. That's a great story. That's phenomenal. I'm just kind of like soaking it in right now, but yeah. And, you know, kind of similar to that, uh, to your locking up with the biotech story, but that sounds like it was very visceral and painful. Like
1: that was painful.
0: Like that was painful. He, he, that was a self
1: awareness deal.
0: Spent like like how how old were you at the time when 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 you got that kind of news?
1: Uh. It
0: was in '99, I think. So you're late 20s, early 30s, more or less.
1: Yeah, right around there. Yeah. yeah. It was 99, I mentioned I think. that
0: because similar, like for me, you know, some of the uh, best learning moments I had, and funny enough, uh, via intuitive, ex-intuitive people, ex-like early class intuitive leaders have a way of like hurting you in a way that that that's going to help you in the long term. But again, like, you know, when <laughs> okay. you're a young guy, you know, and you're ambitious and you're working hard and everything, and then you do a really good job and you just get absolutely gut punched by, you know, senior leader, or especially, especially if it's somebody that you look up to, admire, like, and sometimes we need yep. those things, right? Yeah. Because had do. that not happened, I don't know if Daniel Hawkins would have gone on and successfully yeah. founded and, you know, nope. the cho- done Shockwave no. and then Avail definitely wouldn't have happened.
1: Yeah, I'm going to tell you no. And that's why I say, you know, Lonnie, if you're out there listening, thanks, buddy. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, the other thing that I'll say was a great piece of learning. It wasn't so much a hard thing that somebody said to me or whatever, but a great piece of learning is uh, just think about it for a moment. Did I have any business, having never, aside from the one procedure I saw before college, having literally never been in any type of surgical procedure, up to that moment, I uh, uh, my clinical experience was angioplasty, so a groin stick and and imagery. I uh, didn't you know a damn about anatomy. What business did I have being the first non technical hire at Intuitive Surgical, a robot company for surgery? I wasn't an engineer. I didn't know anything about robots. I didn't know anything about surgery what in the hell was I doing in that spot and how in the hell did I end up there? And what made me think I'd be able to do that? And you know what my learning through all of that was? And, and, you know, I try to, I, I, I try to help young, young engineers mostly, but younger folks see what I saw at that moment. Um. Uh, Hey, uh, I was then a believer, and I'm very much a believer now. That uh, you make your own luck. If you want to be in a situation, how dare somebody tell you you can't? Good luck with that, right? So, if if you really want something, and you believe, and this this is a you know, as I get older, I start thinking philosophically about education. Uh, I worry a little bit about education that is book smart and not what I call street smart. You described in med school having to just figure stuff out. I am a poster child for figure stuff out. And I realized that's why I ended up in that in that spot, because Fred saw that I'm somebody who figures stuff out. And I had the, I'm going to just call it arrogance to believe that I was the right guy for that job, because I figured robots, I'll figure out what I need to know. Surgery, I'll figure out what I need to know. Anatomy, yeah, I'll figure it out. So what did I end up doing to learn surgery? I went into as many surgeries as surgeons would allow me to go into. And I learned cardiac surgery by asking folks to teach me and saying, I literally know nothing about this procedure. Can you please walk me through like I am a resident?
0: Uh And they did. Bingo.
1: They walked me through every bit of it. Why did you make that decision? Why is your angle that way? Why are you holding the tissue that way? Why, 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 why? And I just internalized
0: it all. And, and that's again, like there's so many uh, pearls. And again, like, I think this is why we, we became good friends when we, we get along. So as that we, we have very much an alignment on our, our philosophy of career and life, but like for the younger reps, everybody knows to go into a surgery or go talk to a surgeon and say, Hey, you know, I'm here to learn. But very few know I, – I look at life almost like you have like magic like kind of codes, right? That if you use the right code at the right moment, it'll unlock something and you'll move to another level. And one of those codes, in my opinion, is let's say you start as a sales rep you, and you want to get really good. So obviously everybody knows get really good at the clinical procedure. Very few people know the magic phrase of teach me like a resident because oh, that's, that's very different. That's very different than – yeah, that's very different than teach just can you teach me the procedure. When you say when you tell a surgeon teach me like a resident, there's an unspoken underlying meaning to that that says I want you to mop the floor with me and I'm giving you full permission to do that. It's almost like at that yep. point you you become like you're on the inside.
1: You, you succumb know? to the process.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly it. that's exa- I love that.
1: And, um, you know, I, I asked permission to ask dumb questions. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, the questions aren't so dumb. And then they look at me and go, did you do any clinical training? No, I just asked a shitload of dumb questions before today. That's
0: <laughs> yeah. And that's and, what I did. And, and that's, and honestly, that's what it takes. And I think that the best salespeople that I've met in this industry, not only were very clinically sound, but asked the right questions at the right time and got as close to the customer as possible. You can't tell the difference between a surgeon and some of these people. They might as well be I've, the same person. I've
1: been with them. I, am, I continue to be humbled and amazed at what, as a community, sales representatives in MedTech can do. And I've watched some that they just blow my mind.
0: I've yeah. Them, but... Kind of taking that experience and, and thank you very much for, like, for, for sharing that. So sh- let's, let's kind of start with the shockwave years. Like how did that happen? You know, because going, it's one thing to go from, uh, you know, an employee of a company being in a startup to, you know, being a founder and in yeah. shockwaves case, you know, from startup to IPO. Right. So yeah. Yeah. How did that all, how did that all come about?
1: So, um, After I had to shut down the um, Plavida, the uh, biotech company, I was in Maryland. And I got nothing against Maryland. Maryland's great. There's no med tech in Maryland. And uh, startup med tech is where I wanted to be. And startup med tech is in California, Minnesota. And Boston predominantly, and, and that's probably you know 70 20 10, something along those lines. And biotech has a different ratio, but maybe it's maybe it's 60 30 10 or some such thing. Uh, but it was that nowhere on that list is Maryland, right? So I had to come up with something. Um, at that point, you know, kind of think, um, mortgage to pay. Job's not there because the 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 uh, the company had to get shut down. Um, my, uh, my wife's at home with the kids. At that point, we had three, uh, some hands full there, and I I ended up uh, being involved with an incubator in the Midwest, and in as part of that incubator, I, uh, I helped a company through some. Some um, stages in their development and growth that ultimately led uh, through changes that, that we came up with ultimately led to that company going public and it was ultimately acquired by, uh, by the And then we did another one and that, that one I was involved very early and, and helped frame, uh, frame the story for what became a solid series A. And that company ultimately went public and it got me closer and closer and closer to formation. Of companies and, and what that looked like and ideation around technology and market focus and, um, and the right product to market fit for a technology and disease state growth and all that sort of stuff. And I ended up um, getting asked by um, three arch partners that no longer exist, but three arch partners asked me if I wanted to be an entrepreneur in residence. And um, what that meant was... I joined a couple of engineers in Seattle. So I moved from Maryland to Seattle. And 3Arch and, and what was then Prospect Venture Partners that also doesn't exist anymore. Um, they each kicked a million bucks into a bucket. And that $2 million uh, was given to us, the three of us, with a, with a simple mission. Identify an unmet clinical need and invent or in-license Technology to meet that need, and if we like it, we, the two venture firms, will provide you the seed capital to the Series A capital to start the company. That's that was the job. So, um, in some respects, a scary job if you're not creative or not minded towards really early stage and super high risk, where you control everything. And another respect for somebody who is all those things, it was perfect. And for me, it was perfect. Absolutely perfect. So we ended up, and, and mind you, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I don't know, I didn't at that time know how to invent. Two guys taught me how to invent, the two engineers I was paired with. Those two engineers were among the very first electrical engineers that worked with a fine gentleman by the name of Earl Bakken. And everybody who's familiar with a tiny little company called Medtronic might be familiar with Earl Bakken. He's the founder. Right, so they were involved in the very early engineering teams for the first implantable defibrillator or pacemaker. Um, their names are John Adams and Cliff Offerman, and those guys uh, traded uh, management responsibilities for engineering teams on the first implantable um, cardiac simulators. Really, really, really smart guys. They had 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 uh, between them founded six or seven medical device companies across clinical specialties. So I learned how to invent from those guys. Uh, we identified it on that clinical need. And I, I'd like to say that we co-invented. Really, they, they more invented and I more followed and came up with some hair brand ideas that were sort of added to a couple of their inventions. And that became a company called Calibra. Calibra Medical was supposed to be in Seattle. I was supposed to run marketing, business development, that sort of stuff. None of us were supposed to be CEO. That was part of the deal. We ended up finding a CEO in the Bay Area, and I didn't want to move, so we had to move the company. So here I was, founder of a company where I was supposed to stay on as the senior leader of the early stage and go right off into the future of that company. And we had to move it. And I wasn't willing to move to the Bay Area because at that point I had four kids. And we were up in seattle and we loved it we wanted to stay up there um, so i helped that company move and shortly after that uh as a consequence of that move i worked myself out of a job so i went back to three arch partners and um uh, i made a mistake actually in, in my description of history the first was three arch and fraser healthcare the second one was three arch and prospect the second one was the second entrepreneur in residence program i did And to make um, the world small, the partner at Prospect Venture Partners that contributed into the deal was Russell Hirsch. You might remember I mentioned Russell Hirsch as one of the partners over at Mayfield Funds back in the Intuitive Surgical days.
0: Right. right? right.
1: So that's where I first met Russell. Um, So Russell Hirsch and Mark Wan um, from Three Arch Partners each kicked in a million bucks and we did another incubator. And because those guys taught me how to invent, um, in this incubator, I was coming up with probably 150, 200 ideas. I'd to ask John Adams, uh, my partner in there. And it, it was a whole bunch of ideas. We were looking at orthopedics. We were looking at women's health. We were looking at some pediatric conditions, dermatology. We we're looking all over the place. And um, I came up with the idea for what is now Shockwave because I happened to be looking at uh, lithotripsy for kidney stone management. And I didn't know what lithotripsy was. So I asked John Adams, what in the hell is lithotripsy? And he said, well, Daniel, let me actually describe how I learned about lithotripsy. And he went into the story about um, an implantable defibrillator lead being too close to another lead and sitting on the bed linens, and then a doc hit a foot pedal and created an arc between the leads and caught the bed linens on fire. And that became a problem inside of Medtronic, right? How do we we prevent this and all that sort of stuff. There was another instance, they were in an animal model and they had two leads too close together. And the uh, investigator in that animal setting tapped the foot pedal again, and they saw a flash on the screen and a, a, a disruption in the cardiac signal that was not from the electricity, but it was mechanical. And he didn't know what the devil all that stuff was. So what he ended up doing was failure analysis back at Medtronic. They put two leads into a glass beaker and they tried to replicate. Well, for those familiar with lithotripsy, if you put two pacemaker leads in a glass beaker and you tap the foot pedal, you're gonna do a great job of shattering that glass beaker, which is exactly what happened. All over an electrical table with high voltage all over the place, it was not a good outcome. So he decided, okay, I'm gonna get smart. I'm going to put it in a plastic beaker. That's smart, right? So the glass doesn't break. He did it again. It created a geyser because all the water had no place to go but straight up. And it sprayed water all over the place. So he came to learn about lithotripsy in that way. So he explained to me how lithotripsy worked, meaning electrohydraulic lithotripsy. That was probably, I want to say it was spring or so of 07. And December of '07, a couple of weeks before my fourth kid was born, actually, I, I made a mistake. We, uh, we didn't leave then because we had three kids and we had one on the way. Um, a, a, a couple of weeks before my fourth kid was born, I uh, came up with this harebrained idea of putting wires in balloons, and that became chocolate. That became intravascular lithotripsy. And um, lo and behold, the venture capitalists didn't like the idea. They didn't like can it. I, can they I take a wild guess
0: why? The market yeah, wasn't please. big enough. The market wasn't big enough. It's Am I, I right?
1: That man, I, I'm a cupid doll.
0: <laughs> can I, I? I'm and I need because it's it's in in the space of uh, cardiovascular. I'm gonna have to mark this episode as explicit. I would like to quote my good friend Dr. John Simpson uh founder. Oh, John's great. Uh, yeah, John's well. great. Yeah, he's el- I need, I'm going to have him on the show. Soon. So I once listened to him and this is in er, early in my career then I started to learn how venture capital w- works in this industry which unfortunately it's less so venture and more so just a bunch of guys with money. Um you know. And so essentially uh he, when he at the very beginning I think his very very first company I forgot what it was. Uh but this this is when uh in the whole interventional cardiology space was created He was trying to raise money and there is yep. and he was telling the story with this japanese gentleman who is part of one of the venture groups and the japanese this japanese gentleman i forgot his name he said "He's like you know with his with a japanese accent he said oh uh you know we went doc, dr simpson came to us with this company and he was trying to raise money and we came to him and said you know dr simpson unfortunately we can't invest because uh there's no, the market is very very small and dr simpson told to us uh you guys are typical Stanford dickheads because the market is small because there is no market, it needs to be developed. <laughs> I just I, exactly. I always think of that. So anytime I hear this like, oh the venture capitalists, in, I'm like, Oh, let me guess. Was it because the market was there's no market? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, I, no, I, no, I, no, I had no, to sure. I had to share that. I had to share that. No that problem, gem. no problem.
1: So <laughs> Um, yes, it was. The market was too small, and here's why that determination was made. And this is a really, really important thing from the perspective of of uh, ideation and disruption and new product creation. It's because if you ask the cardiologist how often do you deal with calcium that is hard for you to to uh, uh, to manage, they're going to give you an answer, and that answer is going to be less than five percent. Right. If you ask them how long do you uh, how often do you see calcification in coronary vessels, they'll answer, "I mean, I see it, but it's not a problem." If instead Why? you ask them, exactly, ah, here we go, it's the you question ask you
0: them, ask.
1: It's the opposite end of the question. If you instead you ask them how how many times out of a hundred when you deploy a stent is it not completely deployed and one hundred percent circular? Oh, that's probably about 25% of the time. Oh, why do you think that is? And you start peeling the onion back. And when you peel it back, you get into a place where they realize, yeah, calcification, but it's probably fibrotic tissue and et cetera. Okay, point one. Then you go to a pathologist and you ask the question, what's actually in that stuff? And the pathologist I went to is Renu Vermani out of the CB path, Virginia. And I got her on the phone, didn't know her. And I said, Renu, can I ask you about the pathology of lesions? And I went down this whole clinical pathway that I bore the audience with. And she said, well, Daniel, there's so much calcium in fibrotic lesions when you really analyze them. It's like rebar in a concrete wall. It's all over the place. And that's what keeps vessels from being able to be opened." And she said, the next thing she said, Blew my mind. She said, what you need is something like what they use in kidney stones. Exactly. And I had already filed my stuff. I had to mute the phone because I, I I I would have had something audible to say, oh my God, I can't believe she's she's going down this pathway. She said, What you need is something like what they use in kidney stones to break all that stuff up so the, the vessel becomes compliant, and then you'll be able to deploy stents so much better and have this, 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 and this, all these benefits. I was like, okay, I'm definitely on to something. So I went, tried to go forward with it. This was in 09 and to the credit of the venture guys, the reality is that early stage med tech funding in 09 was awful, absolutely when, terrible.
0: Danny, when was early stage med tech funding good? I don't. I don't know if there was a year <laughs> that it was good. Even there, look. There even
1: some years where it was good.
0: Come on, man. Even even, even Jay tough. Jay Watkins stood on stage and he's like, he's like, yeah. He's like, MedTech, You know, it's it's a tough industry, but I stay in it. Like it just. It's oh, sorry. It's <laughs> it's
1: tough. No, it's tough. It is. absolutely you know,
0: we got to do something about that. But that's that's another conversation. Please continue. I agree.
1: I agree. That is another conversation, you know, and <laughs> I, I think I need about an hour to talk about what I think of all of that. There's a lot you can do. <laughs> But in any event, um, so uh, so I, I, I tried to get it funded throughout 8 didn't work. I tried to in the beginning of '09. didn't work. And I had to shut down the incubator. Hmm. The venture guys are like, sorry, we're not going to fund it. And I didn't have anything else that was worthy of taking forward. I was super passionate about this. And they said, you know, sorry. So with the remaining funds, pay yourself a uh, you know a severance and give John a severance and and uh, pay off the bills, and we're just going to call it done. And I was—I—I I, I didn't even—you might as well have spoken to me as spoken to me in in some kind of alien language. I—I I couldn't understand what they were saying. So you got to be kidding me. We're going to do what? Uh, and I—I I very quickly knee-jerk said, "Well, I want to buy the IP." Mm. And they said, "Really?" I said, "Yeah, I want to buy the IP." Uh, so I used my kid's college phone and I bought the IP.
0: What? How'd yeah. that conversation with <laughs> go over with your wife?
1: You mean after I did it and told her? <laughs> and
0: <then? laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. For those. Uh, and, for those and, and at that, and at this moment. That,
0: at this mo- yeah. at that at that exact moment my wife came and just shook her finger at me because i was too loud and i i, I the baby is sleeping daniel <laughs> oh man No, to be All right. fair
1: to be fair uh, the acquisition was not that expensive it was the prosecution of the patents that were expensive so the real expense came later
0: to be fair okay
1: uh, so, in the same day, the but you believed, you believe. Why
0: did you, how could I you do that? Because, because that's hard. That's a, that's a hard it's decision really to make. It's really
1: hard. It's really hard. So, here's, here's how. And if you go on the Shockway's website, you'll see this little cartoony thing that they've got on there of how did it all happen from, from, uh, uh, eggshells to, you know, uh, the heart or something I forgot what it is. It's a little cartoon thing. it's It's a perfectly accurate thing because they interviewed they interviewed us to 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 create that. Um, prior to that moment, we had a number of things that we tested. Um, we built mocked one up. I say we. John Adams did. He fished a pair of wires down a uh, angioplasty balloon, and we thought it was saline, and it worked. It straight up worked. He created this high voltage board. And he's like, "You stand on that side. I'm going to stand over here because if you if if you touch this, you might die, and and I'm not going to be responsible for that. I'm an electrical engineer, and I know how this is wired. It's dangerous as hell. So I'm like, okay, I'll stand I'll stand over on the other side. So he took the wires and he he had a set of wires in a balloon, and then he touched them to his board, and it created a kind of a sound. And we saw water in this beaker move. I'm like, what? And it didn't blow off the balloon. That's so cool. Then we took an eggshell and drilled a hole in, you know, uh, 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 broke a piece of an eggshell off. And you know that membrane inside of an eggshell? You know what I'm talking about? Okay, so we drilled a hole in that, put a couple of wires, and put them like a tenth of a millimeter away from that membrane. Drop that whole thing in saline and use the exact same thing. And we still have, I I still have this video. Uh, And we delivered lithotripsy, just Okay, and in doing that, we broke the eggshell. It actually blew off the backside of the membrane and the membrane was intact, fully intact, undisturbed by the mechanical energy, undisturbed by the electrical energy. And I knew at that point we had something. That was my proof point because that membrane is about the thickness of the endothelial lining, which sits over the calcification that is embedded in the vessel wall. So I had an analogy and the calcification in a coronary vessel is about the thickness of an eggshell. I had an analogy and I knew that it wouldn't pop the balloon and I knew we could make something small enough that it would work in the coronary vessel based simply on that. Um, That's how I got the confidence. And then it was just chutzpah. Honestly, it was just chutzpah. Um, So I, you know, I acquired the IP and the same day in Wilson Sonsini's office, I had a series of documents lined up. It was an acquisition of the IP, shutdown of the incubator, formation of an LLC to hold the patents, formation of Shockwave, and license of those patents to Shockwave. And on that day, January 15th, 2009, um, we started Shockwave. And um, we got um, seed funding of a few hundred thousand dollars, did a whole bunch of experiments, enough proof point that I was able to go back to Fred Nall, tell him about it. And Fred led a series a angel round of $4 million in uh, February 15th of 12. I quit what I was doing and took over as CEO.
0: Talk- that's, that's amazing. And fast forward and, and, and I, let's, let's get to Let's get into the, some of the veil years, but like just fast forward to today. So shockwave is, Public and publicly traded. They have at least when I checked on LinkedIn, um 743 uh full-time employees. Uh, oh, wow I didn't realize yeah. there that many. Yeah, wow. it's a lot of people and then a market cap of 8.4 billion dollars. So like amazing. Yep. So why would you walk away from that and start a veil? And what and let's start, let's start with the first for like an easy question, which is like what is what is a veil? What's the mission of a veil? Why does a veil need to exist? You don't, so, by the way, you yes. realize you're coming back on this show right? It, yeah. it just has to happen at this point
1: <laughs> I, I, guess like, I fast forwarded to I some
0: think. points I, I know for, I know my audience very well the moment I publish this, they're going to be messaging me like be like dude, why didn't you dive deeper into these stories or this you got to have them back yeah, so, yeah. Is, we'll just we'll figure that yeah. out right. All right it's all good. Was, we
1: can talk about the shockwave years and, and we can talk about venture capital.
0: Oh yeah. We absolutely then. have to. So <laughs> a veil. What is a veil? What does a veil do? Why why does it exist? So
1: um we're gonna answer both things at the at the same time because that's a corollary for the reason why. But I'm gonna people do very frequently ask me why did why did I leave Chakwai? Um remember I mentioned that I came up with the idea before my, my son was born. My fourth mm-hmm. yes child was born. Oh, my fourth, 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 fourth. They left when he, when he was nine. And that gives you some sense of the chronology. Okay. Now, in the middle of all of that, um, I ran the company. We grew it like crazy in terms of people and raised a bunch of money. And we were headed, we had gotten a couple of offers, um, from, uh, from corporates to take us out strategics. Uh, the last round of financing that I closed included T-Row Price. And for those not familiar, and it was John Wood over at T. Orpais. Um That's impressive. Really fantastic. Hell of a guy, by the way. Uh, but, uh, you know, he had the vision on what was called crossover. For those not familiar, right before you go public, the last round of financing very often is considered what's called a crossover. And the large, large um, funds out there started to invest in in pre-ipo stocks to be able to get a seat at the table for when the company goes public they're the first ones to be able to get pieces of the offering and john wood saw us in that fashion so um he got involved in our series c the moment that happened Omar, i knew we were going to go public and uh to put some of that in perspective that was in 2017 i left In 2016, I traveled a quarter of a million miles for Shockwave, Hmm. and I knew when I went public that my travel was gonna be nuts, my work was gonna be nuts, and I wasn't willing to do that, family-wise. I just wasn't gonna be there, wasn't willing. Um, So I transitioned over to Doug Godshill and spent six months inside of Shockwave's offices incubating avail. And um, so why, why avail? What is it? What are we doing? Why does it exist? Uh, expertise is needed in the operating room far, far, far more than it's actually available. And the expertise I'm talking about is the very audience that is on uh, that listens to your podcast. Uh, the folks we chatted about earlier, I'm talking about uh, sales representatives and clinical representatives. I have seen way, way, way too many procedures rescued, I'll say, by some counsel that comes from a sales rep or a clinical specialist in the med tech space to have anything other than the utmost respect for what's done there. But but there's no way you can be everywhere at the same time. You just can't do it. And I watched an industry from when I joined in 1993 where there's about 5,500 hospitals and something less than 500 ambulatory surgery centers, grow to something like 5,500 hospitals, and by some estimates, 12,000 ambulatory surgery centers. Mm-hmm. Which means, and, and oh, by the way, this, the number of salespeople did not grow on the same ratio. The number of procedures did not grow on the same ratio which then means that the number of locations that a sales representative needs to physically visit in order to be able to provide the expertise that they can provide has gone up substantially. But the last time I checked, there's actually only 24 hours in a day and you can't get everywhere you need to go. Made worse, by the fact that selling prices are coming down on all of those procedures that are not done in acute care. And sales reps struggle to be able to do that in a way that is profitable for their businesses, meaning their own sales line and the commission that they generate and 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 the sales line for the companies that they represent, it's challenging. So I figured there's got to be a way to deploy technology to do that. If you could leverage the expertise of a sales representative and eliminate the 50 to 60% of their time that is spent in physical logistics. You serve the patient by bringing that expertise into more locations when it's needed and where it's needed. You serve the clinical teams the same way. You serve the sales rep because of their lifestyle and their time management, and their ability to grow their business. And you serve the med tech company because what they don't need to do is keep growing their sales force to be able to meet those needs. And with all of that, I just saw, you know what? This is dumb. Consumer technology can be redeployed, refashioned, and customized through a whole range of really cool software um, that we purpose-built at Avail to enable that kind of capability to happen on the sales side. I also recognize that through all of the inventing I did, the way I invented was by being in the room, and watching, and that's harder and harder and harder to do. So I saw an opportunity to bring engineers into the procedure rooms on demand. I saw an opportunity to enroll clinical trials faster. I saw an opportunity to launch products faster. So that's what we built the Avail system to do, and that's the reason why that's what I chose to do after the uh, you know my uh, my guest housing. Um, that I had over at Shockwave for six months.
0: Fascinating. And what's interesting that you mentioned, and this is why I think a lot of people just don't realize it, is that we've gotten so used to this idea of like hiring more and more clinical people, more salespeople to support cases, but you can only be in so many places so many times. And I mean, you and I were were, uh, at LSI a couple of years ago where I was on panel and this whole notion of like, you know, again, I, I feel like it's this, it's this thing that's been perpetuated by private equity for decades, which is like med reps will never be you know allowed in the room ever, ever, ever again. You know, period. And yeah, good luck with that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You and you, and you were in the that. audience. I can I can reveal it now that I planted you in the audience. I was like Daniel, you got to be please be in the audience for this and ask just like ask some questions. And you brought up the point like there are surgeons and surgical teams that they get nervous knowing that the medical sales rep is not going to be in the room because nobody has the time or interest to learn everything, every nuance of the technology, right?
1: And And They cannot possibly. They just cannot possibly because there's so many different pieces of equipment. They can use so many different nuances. And candidly, sales representatives not only have the experience of the clinical team that they happen to be with that day, they have the experience of all the clinical teams that they serve, all of them. So they actually see more, right? They 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 see more issues. They see more opportunities. They uh, they have an ability to look around corners, right? Um, and and see what's getting ready to happen. And uh, so for me, this was really about it's about enabling expertise to be exactly where it needs to be at the exact moment, enabling uh, representatives to grow their business without absolutely wrecking their own health and, and 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 uh and uh you know personal life by committing to be on the road more and driving more and missing the football games and missing the ballets and missing the recitals and not going to the parent-teacher conferences and i know sales representatives that are so important to their docs that for the the 15 18 years of their career they've never vacationed out of the state in which they live because they want to be available at the drop of a hat for their docs. That's the level of commitment I'm used to, right? But those same docs are 100% fine with their rep taking the, the I'll describe it as situational cases and, 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 uh, supporting remotely, um, You know, I'm familiar with a handful of examples where sales representatives across clinical specialties, and I'm talking about general surgery and orthopedics, uh, cardiovascular care, where they just simply have not gone to sell in certain locations in their territory because the juice isn't worth the squeeze. It's an hour, hour and a half out of the main area. They've got to go support a case. Um, If they sell there, they're going to have to support, and that's challenging. Uh, so they just haven't sold there as much as they otherwise could. And I'm also familiar with a number of those same representatives, uh, working with the to get units placed in those facilities and flipping business from a 80-20 not in their favor to an 80-20 in their favor and picking up three, four, five, six hundred thousand $600,000 of incremental business. And the
0: That's, main reason that, is that because they're there. That
1: happens all the time. That happens all the time. And there's, you know, there's just opportunities to leverage the skills and um, and grow business. And that I, I, I think fundamentally, candidly, I think the MedTech industry structure, um, what we put into place 30 years ago, 40 years ago of always being in the rooms, um, great structure to be able to make sure the case goes well. Over time, as the dynamics of the industry have changed and the number of sites of service has gone up, the pricing pressure that's there and the aggregation of, of facilities into IDNs and the pricing pressure that that puts in there and all the contracting issues, that has actually made that a bit of a broken part of the industry. Because what's lost is this, the sales and clinical specialists' time to be able to service the customer and help the case move forward. It's lost. So much of that is lost in physical logistics, Mm -hmm. uh, 50 to 60% of the time. And what happens ultimately is you can't actually serve your customers the way you want. You can't grow the business. And, and I I just sought out to solve that problem. That's, that's the reason why I started Avail.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's funny you mentioned that. And I think that this is one of the reasons why um, the industry is struggling right now on the venture side, right? There are a lot of investors are hesitant to invest in these companies that are post FDA, but they're pre-commercial, which is there's this huge scalability issue, not only in in terms of how you service the customer, but even selling, you know, there's, for me, like my mission is to make this industry better in terms of how we sell market, which is to leverage these digital technologies and channels, because that's where our customers are spending time and it's scalable. It just, Mm -hmm. this whole notion of like, oh, if you can't see them, you can't sell them. Like, you know, I talked to somebody earlier today And the guy's territory expanded and I was like, how many hospitals are you, you know, how many deals do you got going on right now? He's like 20, like 20. "20." So even, even if, yeah. So I, I guarantee you that it's, it's not in one city, right? It's, it's at multiple cities, but even, even let's just say that the guy lived in a big city and these are 20 hospitals within, let's say San Francisco. Can you imagine trying, forget 20. 10 in yeah. one week, can you go and, and, and sell and visit and learn everything you need to know physically at 10 hospitals, no. even if in the same city, no, as you're crossing state lines, everything. it just can't, it's not scalable. It's not, you know, and so it's not,
1: it's, it's, you it's know. really not. No. And, you know, one of the things that, um, that w- we, we, for some time period, uh, would place our consoles and anybody could use them. And we were tested tested by 50-plus uh, medical device companies in every clinical specialty you can think of. They wanted to try us for medical education and case coverage, which is what we we're just talking about now, um, uh, getting engineers into room, clinical trial enrollments, launching new products, training field teams, all of that stuff. And they did, and they did for two and a half years or so, and then they started to realize that you know, there are a few others in the space that do nominally what we do in terms of getting, you know, remote access. And and our technology was put head to head against every one of them uh, and multiple times head to head. And we emerged as the technology with the right consistency, the right quality of audio and video, the right service profile, 24-7, 365 service profile, uh, that there's always a human on the other end of the line and we don't charge for it, uh, that they chose us. For, for case coverage, sales support, that sort of stuff, clinical support. Uh, we've been chosen by the largest medtech companies as favorable over everybody else. Um, what they started to realize is there's a strategic value in implementing our remote program because of all of the reliability and consistency they felt confident in it, and the fact that we have 1,100 care facilities, sites of service underneath contract right now representing probably eight to 10,000 procedure rooms across clinical specialties. So there's a quick deployment that they could do. And the way our contracts work, that is essentially a hunting license within the whole facility. Like we're in Cleveland Clinic, but we're not in one room, we're in several. And if we want to add another one, it's a it's a page and a half order form. You just add them on, add them on, add them on, add them on. So industry started to realize that and then recognized, hold on a second, if I, if I am first mover in this and I can do that in a way that, that uh, gets my customers used to this remote, which is 100% coming, but they do it with me, I should have a competitive advantage that way. So they came to us asking Omar for exclusives. Right? So we heard from some of the largest med techs around um, the idea of, of exclusives and uh, had to plug in there. Let's get my run out of battery. You know, we resisted for a little time period. And then ultimately I ended up doing one with Dan Bowles, who's the president of Medtronic Neurovascular. And the reason I wanted to do that is because Dan saw us for what we are, which is a holistic way of bringing Medtronic Neurovascular as an entire team closer to their customers. And they created this really, really interesting and, I think, extraordinarily powerful internal concept of if we could manage to, to make the rest of our organization customer-facing along with our sales representatives, right? So one of the things that sales representatives like to do a lot, understandably, because it benefits their customers, and benefits their business, is they like to bring people from corporate into, into the accounts. If they could do that more systematically and do that in a remote fashion, it can happen with high regularity. And in fact, what's happening in that environment is instead of the sales rep um, being able to visit a customer four times in a month, with our system and the way it's structured the agreement with them, Medtronic Neurovascular in aggregate visits seven times a month. And the other folks coming in are engineering and marketing and clinical trial folks. They're, they're ideating products faster. They're able to, to tweak developments that they currently have underway. They're able to completely change how they're, they're moving forward with clinical trial plans because they're, they're closer to their customer. So I did my first exclusive deal with neurovascular at Medtronic. And, of course, that meant that I needed to no longer work with Stryker and Microvention and Penumbra and a few other companies, uh, which in one turn upset parts of businesses, but other divisions then leaned forward, of course, and said, wait a second, I, I want to do that in my business. And inside of Medtronic, we started to hear, I want to do that in my division. And in other companies, we started to hear the same. So there's there's going to be a propagation of that model.
0: Yeah. And I think maybe, you know, exclusivity is always tough, but it sounds like I think one of the keys to like technology adoption is immediately recognizing the correct adopter as a vehicle for propagating that technology adoption. It sounds like that you rather than rather than spreading yourself thin time, energy, resource wise across a bunch of early adopters, some of whom may not be fully bought in. You, de- you decided to identify the one that was like all in and say, hey, we should go exclusively with them because they're going to have the, be- the-, the best customer success. They're going to they're adopt the product fully and that'll help drive the adoption further in the market.
1: Um, so, yeah, in some respects, that is the logic, but it wasn't the first time we were asked for an exclusive. In fact, I was asked for an exclusive um, in the robotics space. Oh. I was asked for an exclusive, yeah, exactly. I was asked for an exclusive in the cardiology space in the e p space. Why so didn't you go with those other spaces?
0: Yeah, why didn't she choose those?
1: candidly, um, they were looking at us as a way to do some things that I didn't think were great for the med tech industry. Let me just describe it that way and um it was a it was a very narrow application. And that application uh, was not necessarily going to be friendly to field forces, Mm. and that was that was not terribly comfortable. Um, It was not a holistic view of what Avail could bring to the medical device industry, and um, you know, being more mission driven about all of this, I was interested in that mission of bringing the expertise where it can be clinically meaningful, and I was interested in the notion of creating efficiencies in med tech by leveraging their existing resources and generating more more revenues. Obviously, it's great from a profitability standpoint, but it feeds the beast of innovation. So if you're able to return more in operating profit in mid to large MedTech, then there's more funding for acquisitions of early stage companies to bring in technology or or funding for R&D within those companies to create new technologies. And it's just a cycle and it feeds the beast. Uh, that's what, that's really what I'm interested in. And, uh, I I was, I was a little less interested in being used as, uh, as a chisel. That was not, that was not interesting.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really happy you say that because again, I love this industry, but you know, a lot of times I feel that these larger companies for better, for worse, when they see a new technology and I'll use robotics as a great example, I think. A lot of innovation in robotics was stifled because these larger strategics saw the robot and said, oh, this is a shiny vehicle to sell more of our stuff through. And and that's how a lot of like r- robotic companies were acquired. And that's how robotic mm-hmm. companies are essentially used where it's like, hey, here's a shiny thing that we're going to throw into this deal and bundle up, which I mean. I get it that you have to do that in business sometimes, but I feel like a lot of innovation is stifled when you look at a, like a, a truly disruptive technology and just see it as that's a vehicle to sell more stuff through. And I think that misses the larger picture.
1: Yeah. And, and really what I, you know, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, my, my dad's a physician as, as, as we discussed, he's treated patients one-to-one and I want to be one to millions. And um, I'm interested in the technology platform that is Avail being used in that fashion and um, no discredit, you know, directed at or intended to be directed at some of the early conversations. I think, frankly, some of those have come back full circle to say, "Okay, now I see why that makes a lot more sense. Let's talk to you about an exclusive now. Right. So with a different framing right a different set of framing um that is more of a holistic view because i think it was easy it was easy at one point to bucketize what remote meant um what it really is is a is a tool to manage in a more efficient and and um i'll say broad reaching way manage customer relationships so uh, you know there are sales representatives that use our system to grow their business where the outlying customers that are far away from where their home base is are remote first. That's an extraordinary thing. They're able to cover procedures remote first and generate revenue off of that, whereas previously they weren't otherwise going to go. There have been a number of environment or, or settings in which the remote capability has enabled a rep to go into a procedure acutely that they could not geographically get there in time. And candidly, those procedures were quite acute and emergent yeah. ruptured AAAs, A's acute STEMIs, uh, cardiac support cases, neuro cases, it's uh, trauma cases. It, you know, you look at all of that and it's hard to ignore the power of being able to use, use it for that. But most importantly for me, the medtech industry, I, just like you, Omar, I love it. Um, I don't know why it feels like a set of pathology to a certain extent. Cause as Jay yeah, Watkins said, I was it's just going to say, I was just going to say hard industry.
0: Yeah. Hey, Pete, you know, my friends told me the same thing cause I, I left and went to SAS. And then when I was coming back, a lot of my buddies are like, dude, you're going to start a company. Like, why are you focusing on the med tech industry? Why don't you go back? I'm like, I don't know guys, but you know, you know what I think it is. Honestly, personally, this is what I think it is. It's it's easy to be, to feel very good about what we do and proud of it because everything we do is affecting like a patient life, right? Like that's a really cool thing. It's a very noble thing. I'm very proud of, and no offense to my buddies at SAS. Nobody cares about like, I don't know (laughs) your reverse algorithm. That's going to help like a marketing team figure out like online attribution. Like who cares? Who cares? Right? Like the world can live without that, but the world cannot live with like without like, let's say robotics, right? Or certain therapeutics or, or these kind of things, you know? Because all, all of our family members, ourselves, we're going to be affected in some way with some kind of pathology. And it's because of the med tech industry that we actually, you know, live better lives as a result of it, right? I think maybe that's it.
1: Exactly. One, one, of, the, one of the coolest moments for me, and it was humbling as hell. Um, I know he's not going to mind if I say this. My partner, John Adams, uh, needed a shockwave device. And, wow! Um, How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. He needed it, uh, and and uh, had to travel to England to get it because it wasn't approved for coronary use in the United States at the time. And being the guy who he is, we uh, uh, he he sent me a picture in the recovery room, standing next to the interventionalist that did the procedure successfully through a failed stent deployment, by the way. Remember, I described a stent that wasn't fully deployed, and what that the cause usually is. In his case, it was calcification. So, so it was used uh, to be able to to uh, uh, open his vessel up through that stent. Uh, he sent me a picture uh, via via email, and the title of it was "It Didn't Hurt." That's an inside joke because we wondered, would shockwave hurt? Would the patient feel it? So, this nutcase partner of mine, John Adams. Went into a cardiac procedure with no anesthesia at all, no versed, no local, no nothing. He went in absolutely commando and said, Let her rip, let's see what happens. So he sent me a note saying it didn't hurt. Typical John Adams. Uh, but we, you know, the device that we developed was used on him. And that's a humbling thing, man. I don't know what to tell you. It's a humbling thing.
0: That, uh, that, man, that, a humbling thing. That is amazing. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's cool stuff. It's
0: cool stuff. You know, it's all uh, and uh, and again, I appreciate you spending you know this much time with us. You're definitely you have you have to come back because my audience is going to get really pissed off because there's a lot of things we. <laughs> no, we, we I'm gotta, happy to. I'm happy. Yeah, to. so this is but I was going to say it's it's conversations like these, Daniel, that make me say I gotta I gotta grow this business more because I need to get outfitted with a studio and fly people in and do these <laughs> things because these these conversations are just so amazing. And uh, I'm very grateful that we become friends and that you can share some of these things because, you know, a many, f- you know, future med tech execs, probably future med tech CEOs and founders are listening to this. And you have no idea the kind of impact it's going to have on influencing their behaviors and their career decisions a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, you know? So that's why I just like love this platform, this, you know, sort of mode of communication. So.
1: Yeah, but, I really, I I, I really deeply appreciate being able to do this. Um, and, you know, to the extent that, as you said, you got to learn from mistakes, but they don't need to be yours. To the extent any of this helps anybody, then I, I you know, I feel like the reach is, has broadened a bit.
0: Oh, uh, absolutely. And
1: the impact and all, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, for me, it was, you know, leaving business school. Can I, can I envision myself being happy to get an extra tenth of a point of share and saran wrap no i can't i'm sorry i can't it's not for me not interesting i wanted to make a contribution and that's it i want to make a clinical contribution of some type and the problem is once you have the benefit of being able to do it one time it's like crack you just gotta you gotta go get another hit you gotta do it again you gotta do it again you gotta do it again you gotta do it again, do it again. and that's where i am uh, it's exactly where I am. And, um, you know, I, I, I'd be happy to come back again, be happy to talk to you more about my current passion on the veil and and what we have going on there and, um, and, uh, you know, explore the med tech industry some more. Be fun.
0: Oh, no, hundred percent. And the, 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 this inter, sort of new digital world, uh, both on the clinical support side and the selling side and marketing side is a, is a one very close to my heart. So we, we have to talk about that, but to kind of just sort of wrap up, uh, I got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. These are sort of fun, fun questions. You can cool. okay. answer Good. them as, take as long as you want to answer them. So first one is, uh, you know, you've had an illustrious career, you're obviously a student of the game, which is why, like, in my opinion, you've gotten to where you, where you, where you are today. What's a book that you feel like you've, you've, you've found yourself recommending or gifting most often.
1: That's an easy one. The 22 oh. Immutable Laws of Marketing.
0: Oh man. See, this is why we're <laughs> friends. This is why we are friends out, man. The original gangster, Al Rees. And Jack Trout. You know Al Rees is like in his he's like 94, 95. And he's still active. I've I've messaged with him a little bit. Oh that, is, that. that yeah. That so cool. Oh yeah. That Gr-
1: is a baller of a book. And you know who gave it me is. that? Who? Lonnie Smith.
0: Really? I you know Lonnie what? Smith I never met I never TV had the ball. I one day I, I'm kind of making the rounds of meeting all the like historical names from it to it. I've met I've not met Lonnie uh yet. uh Yeah.
1: But, he um he challenged me. Uh, I, I read the book. Uh, he gave it to me, and I read it that day. Like I sat at my desk and I read the book, right? And I kept and for, on reading. I kept on for reading, those reading. Read it's, it's like a hundred-page
0: hundred book. Yeah, you read it, but you memorize it. You know?
1: Yeah, you end up memorizing, and I'm forgetting as I say memorize it. I don't remember which rule it is, but if you can't be number one in the category, create a new win.
0: Bingo! And Number, this is wh-
1: I mean, giantly is, yes. important. Giantly and this is important.
0: And Daniel, this is why when I talk to venture capitalists, I hate this question. It's like, well, how big is the market? I'm like, wrong question.
1: Yeah, how big's the unmet need? Ah, right question. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right question. Qual- right yeah. question. And to- another one of my favorites is uh, huh. uh, the most powerful thing you can own in the, is a word in the customer's mind, and no two companies can own the same word.
0: Yes, 100%. I use both of
1: those to name, to name and arrest, and absolutely separate. At for those not familiar, that's the name of the uh, 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 tip of the Intuitive instruments, and to separate ourselves from the competition of Computer Motion, because we weren't just a, we weren't the first robot at Intuitive. Computer Motion was.
0: Mm, a lot of people don't. know We that. were the
1: first one with a wrist, so I actually. Pulled the whole marketing program over to EndoRest. The and then um, Fred asked me, should we keep the name intuitive? Because that's what it was called at the beginning. Should we keep the name intuitive? And ultimately, I wrapped marketing program around EndoRist and the word intuitive. Because you can't get more intuitive than the human wrist. And just that whole wrap up created separation from competition. And I credit the 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing.
0: If you if if you're a listener to the show and you don't you haven't already bought that book because I've recommended it various times, oh, shame on man. you. But at this go point, I mean it. look, you're talking to a guy who's founded like two two companies, one one IPO. So at this point, like I, I can't help you any more than that. Um amazing. <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, I try my go. best to help this audience. Some of them still message me for 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 questions with questions that I've already given the answers to, but like, you know, not everybody's the same. That's okay. So Last uh last question for you is, um, if I used to say this is a billboard, but since we have phones, it's a notification. If there is a text notification that pops up on the cell phone of every medical sales professional, medical sales rep in the, in the industry for a year, every day, what what message oh, would you wow. put on that phone? Sorry, oh, I, I wow. and and I need to start the show with that because that's not a rapid fire question, but.
1: That's a big one. That is. It shows up on the cell phone of every medical device. Um,
0: Every day for a year.
1: Make sure you contribute to the clinical outcome of every patient you touch today.
0: I, That's what it would be. I couldn't. I can't think of a better one to end with. Daniel Hawkins. That's thanks, what it would be. Thank you so thank much, you. and thank yeah, and thank you so much for coming on the show. You're coming back. You have no choice. You've already committed to it. You said yes. So <laughs> I did. I you- did say yes. But it's been
1: recorded.
0: <laughs> it's been recorded. Yeah. Thank, thank you all for listening to another great episode of State of Medic. I'm your host Omar Khatib, and we'll see you all next time. Bye for now. Thank you for enjoying another epic episode of the State of MedTech. If you're feeling inspired and love this episode, do us a favor. Hit that subscribe button and turn notifications on so you never miss an episode. And be sure to give us five stars and write a short review because that helps more people discover this amazing community of ours. If you're a company who has an executive that you'd like to be on the show or perhaps you want to sponsor one of the episodes, shoot us an email at hello at Take care. See you next time.